Welcome to Drink in the Movies, Episode 3 with Michael. And Taylor. I'm Taylor, he's... Michael. And we have a selection of films this week. Uh, we're going to start with Hail Caesar. Yes, we are. One of three period films that we're going to chat about. What are the other two? 310 to Yuma from 27, or 2007, I believe, with James Mangold. As well as Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World by director Peter Weir. Correct. Peter Weir also did Picnic at Hanging Rock. Personal and, favorite uh, of mine. And The Way Back. Uh, James Mangold did Logan. Hail Caesar, very little known filmmakers. Uh, the Cohen Brothers. They've only made a few uh, films. Have they done anything else that I would know? I don't think so. <laughs> Weird. We'll uh, see what they have to we, offer. We I got guess. Blood Simple. We got Fargo. Uh, we got a great remake of True Grit. Uh, Serious Man. Inside Lewin Davis, one of my faves. That's a strong film. Not a personal favorite of mine, but definitely a good one. Oscar Isaac at his best. Fargo? Did you, did you say Fargo? Yeah. Another great movie. Frances McDormand. They've been Absolutely. working her since the beginning. You gotta see uh, gotta see the, their early work so that you can see how long she's been around. She uh, one of my favorites is Barton Fink. Mm. I you have wanna, not seen Barton Fink. You wanna Fink. do a cheers for the mic? Ooh. Oh, that's nice. Drinking in the movies, folks. Let's do this. Mm. So we went to Hellbent for a nice summer ale. What do you think about this so far? I think we're three for three. Three for three. It's a it's a nice light, uh, really light alcohol content ale. Four point eight. I think it's what I saw on yeah. the list. Yeah, just nice and smooth. It's kind of like drinking juice, but it's uh, it's more of a mm. beer than a juice. <laughs> it'll uh, it'll keep us lucid at a nice four point eight percent throughout the conversation. We'll be good to go on that drive to go see Wanda. That's exactly right. <laughs> we got a, uh, a movie on tap for right afterwards. Shaping up to be a good day. So uh, our strategy with Hail Caesar is a new strategy that we're going to try out with the debate format of uh, Steel Manning. Because I gave the movie a five. It is one of my favorite movies from them. And I also gave the movie a heart. Michael, I believe you gave the movie two and a half stars. Correct. Do you have any uh, opening preface uh, about just what you want to say about the movie at all? Not necessarily telegraph your perspectives, but just kind of so the viewers have a handle on the film. Uh, about about what it involves, plot-wise, that kind sure, of thing? yeah. Um, so this is a period film. That's our theme of the week. This is set in uh, Hollywood of the 50s. Our lead character here is Eddie Mannix, played by Josh Brolin, who is a fixer for a studio called Capital Capital, Capital Pictures. Capital Pictures. There we go. Um, they are a recurring um, element in their stories. Right. I think uh, I read Barton that. Barton Fink works there. Exactly. I think I read that. Um, star-studded cast. We also have Scarlett Johansson. Um, Tilda Swinton. From last week? Alden Ehrenreich. Mm -hmm. We have... Jonah Hill. Francis McDormand. Great. In a small but notable role, and, which, which uh, I did enjoy. A little-known actor by the name of Channing Tatum. Channing Tatum. Ralph Fiennes. I believe it's pronounced Ray Fien, but I'm not Ray too sure. Ray Fien. He's, uh, you know, not the guy that, that's known as Voldemort. <laughs> Voldemort. I prefer Voldemort or he who... Must not be named. As Hugo Weaving is V. <laughs> exactly. He's not Hugo Weaving. <laughs> uh, 
Um, it's oh George Clooney. How could I forget George Clooney? Uh, who's he again? Oh, the title character. There we go. Caesar. He is Caesar. Um, anything you want to say about it? No, you covered the bases quite eloquently there. Um, do you want to begin the Steel Man, where you say why you think that I liked it, or I say why you th- I think you maybe had a good reason to not like it? So I would think that your love and appreciation comes from the interest it has in um, what the film might have to say about the uh, economic system that these characters are discussing, the religious components of it, some of the philosophical um, quandaries that these these characters seem to find themselves in. Um, really, Eddie Mannix, not so much the other characters. I think they play a part kind of in, in coloring in this world that he um, is inhabiting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would think you're probably most amused and interested in his sort of um, dilemma, perhaps, between the opportunity he has to leave his role at Capital Pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, a key kind of plot mechanic is that he's offered a job at Lockheed Martin. Um, so periodically, we're busy through, doing some stuff in the Gulf. Exactly. So yeah, periodically throughout the film, he's meeting with a um, executive from Lockheed Martin who's trying to sell him on leaving the um, ridiculous kind of Hollywood dream machine that the guy clearly criticizes um, and is trying to woo him to come to Lockheed Martin. Meanwhile, Eddie is wrapped up in work at Capitol Pictures trying to track down uh, George Clooney's character. Um, I forget the his name as an actor. He's obviously playing Caesar in a film that the uh, studio is currently it's, uh, making. Baird Whitlock. Baird Whitlock. There we go. Um, I would, I would imagine that it's that content that most interested you, um, as well as uh, the comic aspects, um, as uh, sheer entertainment. Sort of the immediate effect would be um, amusement from the comedy, the set pieces, the musical numbers. Um, I would expect that to just be entertaining. I definitely agree with everything you've said, but the one thing that I I might say that completely separates me from, in my experience from you, because I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but I loved every single actor's performance. And I'm a bit of a performance nut. So watching them each perform the way that they did is what tips the scale. I, I can't think of a scene where I was not enamored by a character. Any personal favorites or really across the board? Oh, toward that it were so simple to pick a few favorites. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did need a lot more Hobie Doyle. We all need more Hobie Doyle in our lives. Um, so favorite is definitely the end scene where he is um, explaining why Baird Whitlock has worth. That's probably my favorite in the entire film of the scenes. But Frances McDormand with her scarves, uh, the uh, aquatic number. With Scarlett Johansson. The uh, dance number with Channing Tatum. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh, does it hurt squeezing it like that? Just every single thing. That's the Jonah Hill, Scarlett Johansson interaction. Oh, right. 
Got near it. the end of the film. Just every single bit. Um, just watching Ray Fien try to continuously coach Hobie Doyle in his acting. Watching Hobie Doyle uh, sing while the old man tries to get back at the moon. Um, see, it's all making you laugh and smile. So uh, whatever you're having right now is how I felt basically the entire film. Um, would be how I would put it. Um, and now something really hard for me because this is a film that I've seen probably five times now that I've loved oh, wow. since the first viewing is I have to try to make a case against it. Uh, and I think that there is definitely a case to be made against it. Um, it does not have a legitimate plot structure. It is very much a film about films. And if you don't want to watch a vignette montage of the 1950s studio lots, where you could almost argue that they're wasting these talented actors, I, I think that you could get bitter really quickly. Um, I, I think that it starts with a very serious tone and it has a legitimate serious backbone that is always danced on, literally, and sometimes figuratively. Um, I, I think that maybe them trying, I think that maybe you could, f uh, I think that I picked up on maybe you felt that the communist um, statements and the capitalist statements were annoying and kind of pontificating and got in the way of a good film that could have been more focused on just Eddie Mannix's um, life and that maybe you would have preferred to actually see scenes with Alison Pill, his wife. Maybe you would have preferred to see more of those dark nights without sleep where he's um, smoking and trying to get the studio running. Maybe you would have liked a deeper character piece. Because as much as I liked all the characters, the thing is I like all the characters, but there's so many that none gets a real legitimate shot. You can't name a character that you think that you saw enough of. Um, and I think that there is a, a strong argument to be made that if you're not putty in their hands and just gonna smile at 1950s studio stuff that you're probably not gonna like the movie you're and it's definitely it's not something that you would expect from the makers of fargo mm. you're not gonna get a gritty story you know the the purpose is that the grit part is a joke it, they they very much are using plot mechanics to just cheat and uh make, make fun which i don't think that everyone needed to be along for the ride for it i'm really glad that i was but i think i can completely understand why you wouldn't be and i think that's a legitimate place to come from it just is really unfortunate to me knowing how much joy that i got from it that you also didn't get to have that that's more than anything i just wish that you could have had the experience that i get to have when i watch it because every time i sit down to watch it i feel like i do when i watch the nice guys i'm just sitting there mm. laughing and i'm just along for the ride yeah, I I think that the the structural disjointedness of it. I think that's what the words I used in my in my letterbox review. I think that did play a big role in me having trouble in sort of kind of getting onto its wavelength. Um, I was just kind of expecting, having seen you know a handful of their other movies. Not I've not seen their entire filmography like you have, but I was expecting um, a bit more of a through line or not through line but like just some kind of um connective tissue kind of bringing these together more so than i got and oh i i have the connective tissue you ready what you got caca on wings as eagles caca 
say more. <laughs> oh no, it's just that's you know the running gag. It's just the fulcrum of the film. It's the thing that was there before the day. Mm-hmm. It's the only issue that presents that is new. In the day, right? Because it's one day with Eddie Mannix. Um, so the only recurring issue seems to be the On Wings' is Eagles story. Right, that Tilda Swinton's character is repeatedly reminding Characters, sir. Characters, <laughs> who I did like actually quite a bit in this movie. Good, um, that's a good thing to hear. Because before yeah. our, um, our delving into her work last week, our last episode and this episode, you did not. Right, I don't know... I don't know what it was exactly about that mode that I think I liked her better in. Um, I wouldn't quite call that. Um, I think this was a bit more um, composed or something like that. I think I prefer her. Yes, yeah, in she's a, more in, restrained almost. Yeah, I think I don't prefer her in some of her more kooky, kind of quirky roles like Okja. Did you see her in Yes, Okja? but I think that that was very much a symptom of the style of film. Did you see Jake Gyllenhaal's character? Yes. Okay, oh, so equally theatrical. Yeah, and I think that that I, I think that there's absolutely a vein for absurdism there. You know, right. to me that it's not that's the, the same vein as uh, Swiss Army Man. It wasn't the absurdism. It's just that I don't think I like her as best in that kind of did register. Did you spend much time with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I did not. Okay, I was going to say she plays the the villain in that really strong performance, and that you know, I do that think kind of... she is a good villain. Yes. Um, I liked her in Snowpiercer. Did you Ooh, see Snowpiercer? Yes. Snowpiercer? Which is weird is because that actually is a quirky role, but there was, there's, there's evil there. Yeah. And I don't know why I think she plays that up better. Um, I think next but, year we'll have to do some sort of a South Korean trilogy where we oh, find an excuse good. to rewatch The Handmaiden and mm-hmm. then, um, Wrap in Snowpiercer and maybe find a new South Korean film. Maybe we could do that it when we uh, when we take in Burning. That could be super fun. I yeah, like that, that idea. That could be fun. Mm. Just figured it out live. <laughs> yeah, the show is being conceived of live on the air. Love so it. what did I not mention that um, really detracted from the film for you? Well, I think we could talk a little bit about the musical numbers themselves. I was really hoping to be more swept up in these than i was i don't know why that the, like the i feel tone... so bad for you <laughs> i know and and i i think maybe on a second go around when i kind of am prepared for the the structure and the self-awareness i could kind of sink into it more but i don't know why the tone felt a little too uh sarcastic for you me. know what i think is the right way to watch this movie for you when you're very beleaguered after a trip to like LA and then also back home in Christmas, mm. if you go both places. Yeah. And then when you get home and you're just, you can relax finally, get yourself a growler, kick back Always on the sofa helps. and just watch Hail Caesar. Cause you don't need to, th- you don't need to pay attention. Yeah. Out of all these films that we watched so far for the classics, I think that this one requires the least amount of attention and the, the less attention you pay it, the, I, for me, the more it, has depth because then you end up noticing stuff because you're not hyper you're not trying to focus and then you end up noticing the corners how accurate everything ends up being right the two and a half ratings are are weird i do think i do think ratings can be weird it's partly because 
everything I'm looking at, I kind of want to like, and I, you know, I'm having trouble figuring out why I'm not connecting with these musical numbers. You know, it's a disappointment. It's not so, so much like I hate this. It's can like, I, I wish I could get into then? this more. So yeah. what, what didn't you like about the swim number with Scarlett Johansson before you meet her character? The sincerity of it. I think I'm sort of already knowing that this exuberance is going to be undercut in some way, which we kind of get when she, you know, turned out to be kind of uh, tough and, and cynical mm-hmm. off screen or, you know, once the set piece is concluded. So, you know, it's not it's not that I'm not interested in musicals. Some of my all-time favorite movies are musicals. Singing in the Rain, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Young Girls of Rochefort, and I'm swept up in those musical numbers and I just I couldn't quite get on board with these as like really sincere numbers for some reason okay but that choreography in the water was incredible it was visually stunning okay okay. so there's something to appreciate there on the eye absolutely I wish it didn't I don't know that I I liked the self-awareness of it um, so is it that you like um, you don't like who actors are maybe behind the film to be in a film do, uh, do you not like that style you know it's kind of a Jodorowsky style where he's like are you do you know you're watching a film and I'm the director right it is it's, trying it's to involve there. you on you know on a couple different planes when I watch a musical number I kind of want to just be swept up in the magic of that moment and i felt like i'm almost distracted by knowing (laughs) that this is this is this is going to end and we're going to then get kind of taken back and that's why you got to pay so much attention and enjoy it while it's there because maybe (laughs) maybe that that sense of of it being fleeting is 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 an appeal yeah it is pleasurable it's because you know that you're gonna get a laugh in a second so you're trying yeah. to enjoy this beauty while you have the chance. Because you never, yeah. especially the first time, I had no clue what was going to come next. Yeah. And I was just the loudest person in my theater, I'm pretty sure. Just yeah. overwhelmed <laughs> with joy at every turn. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's let's hop over to table dancing, if you don't mind. Channing okay. Tatum. Let's um, do it. A little bit of homoerotic uh, un- underpinning there to, to sandwich on to our, uh, episode two homer- homoerotic, uh, conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. A nice through line from episode to episode. <laughs> I, I thought the, the, the bravura of it was great. I thought the tap dancing was sharp, but when you make a scene like that, you just can't help but sort of connect it to um, the the other movies in which you've seen, you know, a similar kind of number, right? That's the to point. Me. That's why they did yeah. all these numbers because they're things that we've seen in all other films, right? That's why Hail Caesar is a story of the Christ. That's why, yeah, you know, they're they're doing this. That's why Hobie Doyle it goes from a western to a, a drama picture because yeah. westerns were famous at that time and they were trying to reinvent his image. Which I guess for me then makes me think that that the appeal of a good musical number or, or one that I really like has to do with what with what it's grounded in mm-hmm. um, and I I felt like I couldn't quite figure out like the foundation on which I'm watching all these musical numbers mm. um, so to me the foundation is Eddie Mannix without Eddie none of these pictures are getting made 
and he's this this fulcrum on he's the the axis on which all of this is spinning and as soon as the scenes end even if they're in the middle of the scene and scarlett johansson chooses to end the scene he's still the one culpable he's still the reason why the pictures continue to spin out and why the the film continues to get put in the canisters and why they continue to move forward on a project even though a star is missing yeah uh so i was i always knew that whatever they were doing was costing him energy and that energy cost would possibly lead him to lockheed martin and so that kept me uniquely grounded um personally i just completely bought into that cost benefit yeah the story I think what you said earlier about had we gotten a little bit more of his sort of like turmoil about whether or not to go, that could have maybe pulled me in more. If I kind of get these, it's always weird to say what I think they should have done. Like I'm not the filmmaker. Sometimes it doesn't really feel fair to say like they should have done this. Trust me when I say that there's no Coen Brothers movie that they made that you and I could improve. I'm improve? What do you mean? Improve. I oh, don't think improve, that, improve. I don't think that you and I could improve one of their movies. Maybe a lesser filmmaker, but I don't think... Yeah. I think we're out of our element with them. <laughs> I think it's safe to say. Yeah, it's just, I think I needed more of what what these moments mean to him mm-hmm. um, for their impact to... for me to feel their impact a little bit more. So um, I felt like they're kind of taken out of the context of of his struggle Um, for me uh i i picked up on that but i interpreted it as a necessity of him he chooses not to let any of that stuff get to him because he's going to have the same stuff tomorrow so he just has to keep moving and that's a style of of man that was necessary for that job and that's why he was such an attractive commodity for lockheed martin right because he just keeps moving forward um and i thought that that was what was what grounded him no matter what was happening, he was just trying to move forward, right? He shows up in the middle of the night and asks for the, the scenes to get uh, put on the screen, and he tells the mm-hmm. night guard that it's going to be a long night for both of us. You yeah. know, he, he's kind of just this uh, axis that keeps spinning, but also is solid. Um, and for me, that just worked really, really strongly. I think maybe we should shift to something to get you a little bit happier now. How about mm-hmm. Hobie Doyle? Hobie Doyle makes me very happy. <laughs> Which scene for with Hobie Doyle is your favorite scene? My favorite gag was the mirthless chuckle by a long shot. <laughs> and his attempt, at his first attempt at the mirthless chuckle, I, I won't even dare to try to recreate How it. How about that door close? Was, the door close <laughs> is perfect. I really just wanted, you know, a movie... The Misadventures of Hobie Doyle. We all want that film. <laughs> Not one of us doesn't want if that If you're film. listening, Coen Brothers, please make this movie. If Solo did get canceled, then I think that Alden might have an opening. <laughs> this, oh, is so vastly superior to Solo, his character in this. Oh, man, I just realized that whatever he, whatever future Ehrenreich might have in the movies, I hope it's with a comic touch because I really think he pulled it off. So you think removable teeth is a good good choice for him? Oh, so good. <laughs> that was hilarious. Um, Roping beautiful girls' mm-hmm. fingers with spaghetti. Yeah. And that is actually one character well, where I really sort of, con- like, I kind of connected with him. There was the scene where he's getting ready to take the girl out on the date, the mm-hmm. other actress. And he's 
playing around with the lasso out in front of her house, and it's impressive what he's doing. Oh, it's I'm like, very he, this impressive. guy knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah, he can he rope. Does, and he can <laughs> even rope with a string of spaghetti yep. at the dinner table. Um, to me, that's one moment where I did feel sort of um, some love for these characters, right? You think about, I don't know, maybe Westerns, some people think of them more as B-movies or something um, when you do, when you think about the classics aside. Um, yes. He certainly I, would be labeled as a B-movie actor. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, that's why they're reinventing his image. I think, I think this does kind of celebrate um, his skill yes. while also it being funny. Um, that is something that like I, I maybe wish I had felt in some of those other moments. But that is a great example of where I think what they were trying to do did work for um so and maybe that's just because it was particularly funny uh, we also get a little more time with him i don't know if that's true or not versus Ch- like channing tatum's character no, i feel like true. i got to we, know we, hobie doyle a little bit better he has a struggle. longer arc absolutely uh, a longer continuous arc i believe that we yeah. have our second scene with him or third scene by the time we see channing tatum for the first time yeah very much a hateful eight channing channing tatum pull here oh yeah <laughs> at absolutely. the halfway mark yeah. Um, so I, I guess we should get to the crux of the biscuit here. The communism, capitalism, um, fundamentals. Did they not work for you at all? Did you understand um, why the Cohen brothers wanted to represent it like this? I had a hard time really getting on board with wanting to dive into sort of the thematic interests because I was having trouble just getting on board with the surfaces right if you're not sort of with the movie like rhythmically um it doesn't really encourage it didn't really encourage me to to dig deeper so i'm curious Mm -hmm. to hear what you think i think you're gonna have more to say about this than me well i i do but it's it's one of those things where every time you see it it feels differently because the socioeconomics of the country and the world conversation have changed i think that one thing that holds true is that it's incredible how pa- compassionately they dem- they represent both sides right yeah. they uh they poison caesar right uh they uh kidnap him um and he wakes up on a lawn chair inside to vacuum you this is george clooney's character at a beachside house yes baird woodlock in the film and then he's making a film where he plays caesar um and he wakes up and goes and takes a seat and believes that he belongs where he is and that they're waiting on finger sandwiches. Right. And then he goes on to have a long, <coughs> interesting conversation at some points with many men that are very, um, one would say affluent. Oh, yeah. And one would also say concerned about themselves. Very, uh, the arguments are always about themselves and how this can improve themselves. And they're, they're very worried about the cause and they're holding him for ransom. And it all pays off in this great way where Channing Tatum has handed this money that he didn't ask for in this briefcase that is uh, kind of the MacGuffin to the film. And then his small dog runs and jumps from the canoe into his arms and he drops their entire plan and, and arguably a f- at least a few months of work and planning into the water of no consequence so that he can save his dog and board this uh, 
Russian submarine. And walks away with a shrug, and, basically. And so it's it's how it, it kind of is an interesting representation of, of how the people that feel help from bigger structures always, you know, what they have doesn't matter if the person wants something else and they got to let go of what you're giving them, no matter how hard you worked for it. And I don't think that that's something that's exclusive to socialism. They just represented it in that way in this film. And they represented capitalism in, a, in an equally terrible way with Lockheed Martin, I think. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, it, as much as you can maybe claim that the movie studio is a representation of capitalism, it's also a representation of art and working yep. artists. And where did all the socialists work and make their living so that they could come up with this plan? You know, so it's kind of this nice fulcrum. And they're talking yeah. about this book, Capital spelled with a K, right? They're working at Capital Pictures, T-O-L. And then Lockheed Martin is the capital with a, you know, T-A-L. Right. And the, so it's, you know, this kind of a trifecta of uh, conversation happening that I, I just, I'm enamored with it constantly every time I see it because it's not picking a side. It's just saying both sides are pretty iffy the middle might be really really hard but it sure does give you a lot more reward yeah i think that i find it interesting i just wish i wish i had felt it more in the moment i didn't quite find that the um the surfaces and the numbers and sort of the rhythm really connected with sort of these um broader interest it didn't one didn't really lead me um to the next like I, I i couldn't find myself wanting to think about what they had to say about some of the some of these things when it felt so so kind of on the nose um so you thought that it was too on the nose a little bit yeah what what specifically was a little bit too on the nose if i can ask that the fact that this that this this movie has something to say about uh, capitalism versus communism and the role that re the, the religion plays in Eddie Mannix's life, I feel like I'm being told what this movie is about rather than feeling what this movie is about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, what about um, Caesar's representation of religion? George Clooney's character, Baird Whitlock. Uh, Caesar or Baird Whitlock? Well, you know, because he brings something to the conversation too, right? He's yeah. He's taken by the the uh, he's kidnapped by the socialists. Yeah. Um, or the communists. Um, your pick, kind of based on what you think. Yeah. Um, and then you know he is a Catholic, but he's not really a practicing Catholic in the way that you know, Paul Schrader would belabor on Catholicism. Yeah. He's more using confession to talk about his personal life and how he's letting yeah. his family down. You know, yeah. he's using it more to accentuate the things that he values, not to pursue a God figure. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that there, that that isn't necessarily a detractor for me. I, I yeah. didn't, view it strongly as a religious context i just viewed it as yeah. a very historically accurate um thing because everyone 
was yeah. some denomination of religion back then, and many were Catholic. That was kind yeah. of the right thing to be, if you will, especially for yeah. families that were nuclear families, just like him, right? He had a boy, a girl, a wife that stayed home, and yeah. uh, oh, you gotta go back to work? Oh, geez, honey. It was like the American dream, the troubled <laughs> American dream. I did kind of, I guess I, I, I was maybe kind of interested in the idea of him I, I thought I thought there was there was humor in him attending confession as often as he did, while we I don't really want him to be apologizing for anything. Um, you're you're sort of on board with what this guy does for a living, right? And Absolutely. even though he's not talking about it in the confessions, you still still feel like this guy doesn't have anything to apologize for. Um, I agree that he doesn't have anything to apologize for, but that's because he's going to apologize because he values those relationships so much that he feels like that's the right thing to do for the people that he cares about to try to pursue what they want for him simultaneously i i took it you know once again in a completely different way <laughs> yeah um were you on board with his performance 100 percent. there's not like a performance it. in the film that i didn't like yeah and i don't know her name but the girl um that does the dancing that hobie doyle takes out on a date Oh yeah, I, I think her her name in the film was Carla. Yeah, that's I, right. Great performance. Really, really small amount of time, but what a great performance! And another just great relationship. That, yes, that dinner date scene. I was like, so cute. I want them to live a very happy life, and I want to watch all of it on MTV. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> the life of Hobie and Carla. That is a great concept. Um, so some of the smaller roles, uh, Frances McDormand. Did you like her or not like her? I did. Um, I don't know that I got enough of her to just no one to, to have that much to say about it, but I thought it was a welcome, uh, okay. a welcome role. How about Jonah? Uh, I can't say I felt much either way. Um, amused, but um, okay. So yeah. at least amused. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how about Scarlet playing off of Jonah? I wanted to know more. Um, we all want yeah, that's the whole yeah. film is we want to know more we want more that's why it's a delicious <laughs> yeah. film because you always want more it leaves you yeah. coming back for more yeah the only unfortunate thing is that that's all you get but did you like what you got from her i like what it was implying and what it was hinting at i think yes. yeah and they, they, they do that. go on to get married and uh, right all that they, they so they tell us yeah yes. that they hit it off and he actually keeps the kid or yeah. He's going to be the father. I think that was a funny twist. So, um, I guess George Clooney, you like him? You dislike him? You feel neutral? Probably one of my least favorites. I wouldn't say I hated him by any mean. Um, but I was I was just less and less enthused. He was the one who I felt maybe more than anything was um indicating rather than acting. Um interesting i thought that the role called for that. that's an interesting note. that could be it say more about that because i think because maybe he, i'm I, I just wasn't quite watching playing an right. actor who at the moment isn't acting except for those other scenes where he is acting right which maybe i just i i couldn't quite find the right way to take that in i kind of felt like and he was definitely something's off here and i'm just not quite picking he up definitely on it. was a, uh so there's a good argument to be made for indicating because he's trying to play that 1950s uh just studio face you just slap him in whatever film and then once you get him out of the film he's not this smart guy he's just this guy that's victim to anybody's conversation 
Yeah. And uh, definitely when he's sitting on the sofa um, talking about um, when his friend asked him to shave his back. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, that's who benefits. You know, there was, there was certainly some indicating there, but I thought that it served the character because he was representing this 1950s caricature of what the studio is like. And to yeah. me, the whole film is a caricature. So I, t- yeah. I think that that's a very valid criticism. And if, if you're not on board for the caricature um, of the film, then that's completely reasonable. But yeah. I, I do think that it was striving for that tone. So if you yeah. picked up on it, you picked up on what they wanted to, you just didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, you can't help but come to a, come into a movie with this many popular faces and not have, you know, the memory of what you've seen them in before. I think about Clooney as being an actor who I remember most when he's not saying anything those smugs in oceans 11 or you know those those smirks um oh, okay so this so... is this is a more colorful colorful performance that i sort of i just wasn't quite calibrated for it and i think um maybe kind of coming into it again knowing what i was in for i might be more with it so just briefly what's other than soderbergh who can get the most out of any actor or non-actor What's a movie you think he's good in? I don't remember this movie super well, but I remember enjoying him in Michael Clayton. I don't remember who directed mm. that. Yeah, he was pretty good in that. I like I'm him kind of. Well that. Uh, this is one of the only movies uptight. I like him in personally. Oh, you're not a Clooney fan? Movie. We've never talked about. No, Clooney. I I want to be a Clooney fan. It's very interesting. I want to be. Good Night and Good Luck was kind of the first serious film that I ever got into. Um, but I really don't generally care for his performances that aren't with top tier talents yeah know? it's and i really didn't like his uh his suburbicon film earlier this Ooh. year yeah i did not see suburbicon because i didn't hear great things i liked him in uh up in the air mm. yeah i don't he has a good performance i don't particularly care for that film. yeah i feel like i'm kind of alone in like in that movie you're not so, there's a lot of you think there's, there's, there's some love out there oh there's a lot you okay. just gotta check okay. box. um it's jason reitman right who directed that I believe you're right. Yeah, I yeah. watched it earlier yeah. this year. You don't love all of his stuff, but I do kind of. I kind of like what that movie's laid down and, and his performance in that. Oh um, yeah, all the performers are good. I just don't generally like the film. I think, yeah. and it's a depressive tone. And you know, that's. Oh, yeah. I I think that I probably watched it um, and wanted to watch Parks and Rec, but I watched that movie instead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two very juxtaposed tones. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think on another viewing, I could come in just kind of with different expectations, and you know, I want to like I never want to have my like my mind just made up about a movie. I like the idea that ratings are adaptable, incredibly flexible. Yeah, um, one of my favorite lines from any movie was in Clouds of Sils Maria from like two years ago with mm-hmm. Kirsten Stewart mm-hmm. and Juliette Binoche, and they're talking about the script that Juliette Binoche's characters working on. She said train. Uh, I can't remember if it was on the train or in the house in the mountains, okay. but, you know, she says, like, think about, you know, the script as an object, and it's going to look different from the angle at which you're looking at it. Yep. And uh, I think Hail Caesar is definitely one of those movies where I was probably just, I was looking at it from an angle from which I probably was never going to get on board with it. If I go back and think vignettes, colorful um, and you do performances... Like Oh yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, 
I think I could get with it. And I think maybe so. if you spend, I always want to like a movie, you know? If you spend some time without watching anything that is legitimately from that era, yeah, I think that you might find the appeal for it. Because when I had first watched that film, I had watched very little 1950s work that wouldn't have been, you know, whatever, like Sunset Boulevard, The Searchers, yeah. uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Rio Bravo, you know, like the big, big stuff ones, yeah. was the, all that I would have seen. And so when I saw it, I was like, I'm seeing everything that 1950s Hollywood has to offer in this modern context that's abbreviated yeah. and punctuated by these great laughs and kind of a, sh- a moderately short runtime for as many genres as you get to bump through. Right. And a, a sterling performance from almost every character. Would you say that anybody had a bad performance? Not particularly. No. It had it had Who's much more to do with the worst performer. The worst performer? Uh yeah, on the spot cuz it's a hard Clo- question. I don't uh, You want I would have said Clooney in the moment. Okay. Um He's the one who comes to mind. My answer is going to be one of the random guys in the house during the conversation while they eat sandwiches. Yeah. Because everyone else is amazing, and I have to pick by the way that this question's phrased, so I'm just going to pick You posed it. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe Lockheed Martin guy. Yeah. Just because I don't like him. <laughs> right. He's hard to like. Um, so I, I think that kind of capitalizes our discussion mm, of... With a K? Capital Pictures. Feature film. Hail. Caesar. One I need to revisit. Um... So, should we move on to a film that you're much more positive on, like I Remember You? Oh, you want to go to I Remember You? Let's jointly... I was just picking one that you rated higher than Hail Caesar. Yeah, that's... He said smugly. That's why ratings are weird, (laughs) right? I Remember You. We could go to something more positive um, in Princess Mononoke, or we could do Princess Sid, also a princess, or we could even go all the way to Mission Impossible Fallout. Get I remember you out of the way. I don't think I'm gonna have that much to say about it, right. but I think we can. Strengths. What do you think of their its strengths? Cinematography. I think this is an Icelandic film for our listeners who haven't seen it. This fell on my radar after seeing that it was a uh, New York Times critics pick sometime last year. I forget which critic recommended it. And um, it is currently available on Netflix, uh, at least in America through streaming. Uh, I believe that I looked at the list of what was leaving this month, and it wasn't leaving this month, so you should still have a chance to see it if you listen. Um, So, cinematography, what else? I thought the um, rapport between the two lead characters, actually there are quite a few lead characters, but more specifically between the doctor and the uh, uh, policewoman, I thought that their rapport was okay. Um... And I think um, its sort of attempt to um, connect its thematic interest with what's actually going on on screen was interesting. I don't think it quite pulled it off, but I liked what this movie was trying to do. Mm -hmm. Um, This is very much in keeping with the trend of, I think, a a number of recent horror movies about connecting grief to horror conventions um, and was interested in what this movie had to say about this dad whose son mysteriously went missing sometime like a year ago before the movie um begins and i kind of liked this idea that he says sometime early on in the movie 
asked when the policewoman's in his house and sees that his place is littered with pictures of his son. Mm-hmm. And he says, I, I woke up recently and had trouble remembering what he looked like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I so this led me to, you know, put pictures everywhere. And he also said that if he would classify someone displaying this type of behavior as an uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Right, exactly. And... I thought I thought it was kind of interesting to to think about what's more terrifying the possibility of him being um, revisited by a ghost which he thinks might be his his son mm-hmm. there's a lot more going on plot wise in this movie that's kind of hard to get into what's more terrifying that or the idea of him forgetting mm-hmm. what his son what his son uh, might have meant to him or, or or looked like I thought that was kind of an interesting idea um I think there was just a little bit too much going on plot-wise. I don't think this really was too seamless with what's going on in sort of the separate narrative that um, timeline-wise we, um, we we don't know whether these are really going on at the same time or one before the other, you know? Well, you have no reason to question it until halfway in. Right, I'm saying that with the benefit of hindsight. Um, but... Um, yeah, so sort sort of interested in what it was trying to do. Thought it was pleasant to look at. I think the cinematography of Iceland was beautiful. I, I liked the locations, and I think the barren, cold, harsh landscapes sort of contributed to that feeling of isolation, which you know makes these characters feel like they are more vulnerable. Um, but can't say I was really captivated by any image of the um, kind of horror tropes that this had to offer. Can't say I was ever very scared. Not that that's really, you know, the measure of success of of any given thriller like this, but it's part of it. You kind of go in looking to be shaken. You go go in looking to be shaken up a little bit. I never really um, felt very stirred. Um, Yeah, what about you? Um... I did think that the rapport was very strong. I also really liked their performances. I thought that the first half of the film, they had excellent performances. They did dip, but they, they were the most consistent part of the film. I really liked the first half with the juxtaposed uh, lead character, uh, the trifecta, and then the duo. Um, I, I really liked the way that they built the, uh, the psychologist character and mm-hmm. the way that the detective character was introduced as a neighbor first. Yeah. Um. I really loved the locations. I really thought that the shots in the fields um, were very reminiscent of that great wheel in the night scene that I was talking about, the wind shakes the barley. Um, Those were really neat. When she falls in the stream, I was very stirred. Um, The graveyard scene was really strong. And um, really, after halfway through the film, when she's fallen down the stairs, the entire film devolved for me, and I was just waiting for it to end. Yeah. And the CG tower crumbling was Oof. terrible. Um, that was rough. I did think that they did a decent job with what I interpreted to be a very low budget, doing the makeup of his eye being gouged out by a brick um, and her yeah. dying. I thought the uh, timing of how they did the her trying to call for help and then seeing that the girl was pregnant with her husband's child was good timing. And then I just, I have nothing else positive to say. 
And that's I remember you. I remembered it. See? <laughs> I remember it for now. I think I expect to forget it rather quickly. But it's on Netflix. You decide. Yeah, give it a look. Uh, you'll... Leave us a comment. Tell us why we're wrong. I definitely encourage you to tell us how we're wrong because I would love to find some way to appreciate this. I will say that it is based on a critically acclaimed and based on what I'd read, a very, very um, cult acclaimed novel. Mm a lot of love out there on the letterbox reviews for the book and how they really think that the movie didn't give it a fair shot but that a lot of people were saying that it's a better adaption than they expected so i do think that um in hindsight having the experience of having seen it and now knowing that it's a book it definitely seems like something that would be stronger as a book yeah that boat scene definitely would have been better in a book that that girl uh the the elder lady yeah all that would have been much better and more thematic in a book where you're spending 10 pages wondering like why she's not talking and what she knows and you know the slow burn benefit yeah um i remember you netflix that was quick about one tenth the time <laughs> moving of, uh, on Caesar. <laughs> so uh let's let's jump over uh let's do one more before we dig back into our classics here uh what are you leaning towards uh, before we get back into the classics, how about another shorter one? We'll do Princess Sid. I think we'll spend more oh, time yeah. talking about the period ones. I think this yes. will be similarly quick. In I think fact, we let are... me um, pull up some of my detailed facts about that film Ooh. that I, I took down. Facts? Oh, d- d- detailed facts. All right. Lest you forget. They uh, are just crucial to me being able to talk about this film because i do not remember anyone's name at all other than you know the title character so uh just to do strengths first uh james vincent who is the love interest of the aunt really strong uh subtle performance he's very much hemmed to the corners but i was always pulled by him and drawn by the way that he performed against everyone and how he used his eyes to act really really well um yeah and then uh rebecca spence who plays sid's uh, aunt fantastic yeah. performance reminded me of rebecca hall Ooh, i could see that uh i completely agree i liked both performances you call those out did you not like princess sid herself no, i did but those those performances were legit legit strong like i want to see those actors again and with her i don't want to seek out her work i want her to have time to develop um and work on her craft i think that i'm going to see three to four movies that she's going to be in that are going to suck before i see her in something great again but i think that once she gets going in her later 20s she can turn into you know a a legitimate actor not to speak ill of someone's profession or to talk down but i think that she'd be kind of a b-level saoirse ronan if she mm. played the craft right. Yeah. She just doesn't have that charisma that Saoirse has. Yeah. I could see that. Um, oh, we have names here. That's helpful. Um, Script-wise, I feel like in a way this is, sort, this is sort of a conventional kind of setup where you have a rather free-spirited character, free-spirited youthful character entering the live, the life of a more stiff uptight bookish 
character. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, it's not romantic in that sense, but it's it's almost like a bringing up baby kind of thing, right? Where the free-spirited character um, is sort of um, juxtaposed against this more uh, stiff. That sounds like a criticism. I don't mean to criticize the ant at all. But I, I think there is sort of a convention there that is working. And, and what, what so I did... what's interesting is that I can make an argument against both of things of what you just said. But I 100% agree with you. But I do think that Sid is more stiff in mm. her antagonism because yeah. of the loss of her mother. And I do think yeah. that the aunt is more open because of her openness to religion and experiences and accepting others for who they are. Absolutely. Where and Sid I think is not. Completely agree. And I think that's what's what I liked about this movie is that it's not quite that simple, even yes. though that's be, it being sort of the implied setup. Um, and I liked the idea about them uh, coming to an understanding about each other's um, pleasures and interests. The aunt's deeply interested in writing. She's a novelist. Obviously she's interested in writing books. She's not as, you know, anywhere as sexually adventurous as Sid is. We don't know that. We know that she isn't now. Right. She has, she says that she hasn't had sex in like five years or something like that. But five years ago, she still would have been over double her age. Exactly. Um, (laughs) She has, I wish I could, you know, I wish I should have written it down, but she has some great monologue right in Mm -hmm. the middle of the movie, which I think is probably the the peak. Absolutely. Um, Right before the uh, rape fallout fallout of the rape yeah exactly um you know i think a a much much worse film would be about princess sid helping her aunt break out of her shell or something like that and i think this is saying that this isn't a shell people are different people find pleasure in different things and that there's value to both absolutely um i i also really liked the love interest character the girl who works at the coffee shop. Um, her name, of course, is... Um, there we go. Malik White. And in the film, she goes mm. by Katie Sauter. Katie. That's right. Cool mohawk. Badass mohawk. She did have a dope mohawk. Um, I really liked... Five stars. After the after the uh, that terrible scene, how those three gals came together and were really strong and you know it kind of turned into like almost a a buddy movie for a little bit yeah and i really enjoyed that um it had strong um cinematography it had some pretty decent lighting going on yeah um i was gonna say it just moving forward into a film that we're gonna talk about later it almost does feel like a a b version of an alex ross parody yeah where you know it's just an in-depth character study from kind of an you know he's made a bunch of films but kind of a up-and-comer you know he still hasn't made his best film i would say i would agree the emotional impact like never reaches um any kind of unique height it um it's all touching and i i kind of like the central relationship it just didn't really have the punch you know that kind of brings it up into like the the higher tiers of star ratings i guess yeah but um there was nothing i like hated about this movie i think it, overall it was quite enjoyable i didn't think it, some of the plot mechanics behind how sid enters her aunt's life her aunt's life was that believable she's ostensibly in conflict with her dad and that's why her dad says 
you know, why don't you go visit your aunt for a couple weeks and that'll well, give us a perspective. Also, because either. she's about to graduate, she's fairly talented at soccer. We yeah. we see visually, and she has a legitimate opportunity to attempt to get a scholarship. And she um, is a teenage girl who does not have her mom. And, you know, I think that it's entirely believable that a father who really loves his daughter but is shattered by grief because his son shot his wife and then killed himself. And now he's been raising his daughter for, you know, 14 years alone, knows that the best thing for her is for her to not be with him and for her to go level up and find true compassion and understanding in someone that is not rocked by grief even though the aunt lives in the same house that she shared with her sister who's now dead and I think that it kind of takes us on a journey of Sid coming to compassionate reckoning with her behavior she doesn't change who she is but she is granted the ability to not just know that she said something wrong but to understand the other perspective by the end of the journey absolutely so i i did find it to be believable um i I don't think that it necessarily was particularly great at being believable but i think (laughs) that if you read into everything um like i did into the thematic backbone of what's going on i did find it to be believable like it was a legitimate reason to make a screenplay the film didn't capitalize on demonstrating the values that could really weight it emotionally yeah I guess I I had trouble picturing when her dad talks to the aunt on the phone at the beginning of the film and he says, you know, we're at each other's throats or something like that. Can she come stay with you? I almost felt like I maybe needed to see a little bit of that side of Sid that would have shown me what that looks like for her to be at someone's throat. Hmm. She comes across to me as she came across to me as pretty laid back, pretty open pretty open-minded or at least that's kind of what the film is implying but um you can certainly sort of like infer that or just assume that you know everybody has that side to them um and we're showing that side what are you thinking of as the film goes on she has moments where she lashes out and says mean things to her aunt aunt. yeah who is a, a a parent character Right, but I think it, those felt more to me like slips of the tongue. Like, just before that monologue, she says, you know, like, maybe if you didn't... I forget what it was. She was like, maybe if you didn't read so much, you'd have more sex or something. And then she was like, I didn't mean to say that. When the dad says, we're at each other's throats, I'm picturing a combative teenage girl who looks has more like the eighth grade kind of girl. Purpose. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It wasn't a huge deal. It wasn't a huge detractor. Um just something that, you know, was You would have liked kind of accentuated it in a me. different way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. But so, yeah, uh, again, overall. Strong effort. Lovely. Great yeah. little Netflix stream. Yeah. We gave totally. it the same rating as I remember you, but we'd certainly I think recommend Princess Said first. Ninety minutes or so. Yeah. Absolutely. Very romantic, very beautiful, very down to earth. Um and you know, you leave without any emotional baggage. You're just like that was a yeah. journey that I went and now I'm gonna stream something else on netflix lovely all right well that's princess sit off the list i think we're gonna have to get back to our historical films here do you want to take the 310 to yuma or do you want to jump into master commander let's go to contention let's go to contention i think we both like this quite a bit i think we both love this film 
if I'm not mistaken. I think we did. I think that we found your favorite Ben Foster performance other than Leave No Trace. I think we did. I liked him quite a bit. Maybe I'm just coming around on him in general. I think if anything, if anything has changed about me during this podcast, it is maybe my appreciation of Ben Foster. All right. (laughs) So my character acting um, subconscious mind control is working. Is this all a ploy? This is all a ploy. Did Ben Foster... (laughs) have something to do with this podcast mm-hmm. and then i'm gonna kidnap you and i'm gonna hold you for ransom and i'm gonna get some money in a briefcase and we're gonna take it to russia <laughs> this, is, this is gonna be a good podcast continue listening folks um i did like ben foster quite a bit in this i liked everybody in this i liked christian bale i liked russell crowe as well as the supporting crew um really strong supporting crew yeah i I'm having trouble kind of recalling some of those other names. Um, Henry Fonda? Or is it Peter Fonda? I believe it's Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda. In this one. Yep. Um, Logan Lerman as his son, I thought was solid. And then, um, personal favorite of mine is Gretchen Mole. Who is Christian Bale's... Wife. Wife. In the film. And she, she had, you know, 20 IMDb credits at least before this. All small movies. The same sort of small supporting role. But this is the first one where people can see that she has this brevity of um, communicating large amounts of emotions just with her posture as well as her face. Yeah. And she really can um, hold her own in scenes against one of the strongest actors of the last couple decades in Christian Bale. And she she plays wonderfully off Russell Crowe. Um, yeah. And uh, she's in another, um, she's in a limited series on Hulu. And for the life of me, I can't remember what it's called right now. Um, mm. It's with uh, the guy that played House. Um, oh, Hugh Laurie. Hugh right. Laurie. Yeah, Hugh Laurie and Gretchen Mole uh, did at least season one of a limited series. I'll uh, yep. look up and, and include it by the end of the episode of uh, this great little psychological thriller show where she kind of really gets to stretch her legs so if if you want to see her really dig into a role that's a delicious one (laughs) yeah when you think about supporting characters i always can't help but sort of think about that ratio of like screen time to impact and Mm -hmm. she's not in much of the movie but you remember her from that dinner table scene and it's her husband and her son so every every ounce of the scene has an impact on her yeah. And for me, I bought into the emotional stakes of her in that. So when I'm watching it, I'm also yeah. watching how it impacts her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite Ben Foster moments, this is a very small thing, but I just thought it was great, which I didn't laugh at in the moment, but that I thought was great in hindsight, was mm-hmm. towards the end of the film when Wade uh, and Evans, Christian Bale and Russell Crowe are make it a run for the train and ben foster had you know in uh encouraged the townspeople to to take them out mm-hmm. and they once they start running everybody's um shooting at both of them and he says you know no not the guy with the hat the rancher and they're not listening he goes the rancher you dumb shits and kills like five of them and immediately cocks his gun bang 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 bang, right (laughs) and that's i think what's what's pretty good about this movie is you're not just kind of being told that these are like bad guys who know what they're doing we do see their gunslinging and Mm -hmm. just how quick they are and you're like 
that's pretty quick gunslinging. And it does really help build up these guys as intimidating outlaws. So, um, I guess let's start at the beginning. With yes, the, I uh, jumped to the end. I just love that moment. I, I mean, there's a lot to love at the end of there. I, I really wanted to just jump to that, the crux of the chase I went scene there. right there. <laughs> Sorry. The cat, you know, what, what happens with Russell Crowe and Christian Bale and how that relationship materializes. But we should probably start at the beginning where yes. the barn is burned. Yep. Did, did you buy in? Did, did that give you your stakes? Or, or oh, is yeah. this a case oh, yeah. of no stakes? No, I was with it right away. Okay, so fantastic and then we move on to the um robbery what do you yes. think of the robbery totally with it this is a robbery of a small stagecoach by russell crow and team mm-hmm. and was swept up in the action think this is well choreographed action um i loved every bit of it um I was totally with it. What did you think of uh, <laughs> of the man being left alive in the carriage, and or in the um, yeah, it's a carriage that that's hauling all the all the gold or money. I think it's money, just cash bills. Do you remember yeah. how there was a man left alive that wasn't checked? Yeah, there was. It turns out that despite them, despite Russell Crowe's gang thinking that they've maybe killed everyone, it turns out there was one guy left who. And there was one character responsible for that right and that's i think the first instance where we see um wade's quickness with his gun and, he and, takes and also both. his you know ruthlessness absolutely tommy was weak tommy was stupid tommy's dead that's all you need to know about this character that's it's all just you how need quickly. to know about tommy <laughs> <laughs> exactly tommy's dead and uh i think it's important to have a moment like that front-loaded so that we know who we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I totally bought into it. So there, there's a few really memorable scenes in this. Um, I'm going to kind of fast-forward. Let's do dinner scene. You, did you like the dinner scene? Yeah, absolutely. Strong. Um, it, it's just a conversational piece. Really well-lit, really beautiful. Strong actors yeah. working off each other. Great... Um, broadness in character portrayals you get kind of a little bit of everyone um and that's you know after they uh caught him and everything so uh then we move on to uh let's jump all the way to the pass i guess the uh yeah the pass where they're ambushed by indians right and russell crowe's wade actually saves the group in mm-hmm. this instance, by single-handedly, I think, taking out all, all of the Native Americans in one go. Yeah, I had no idea go. how many there were, but yeah, all, all of them were gone. And I don't think that we ever see them. We just kind of see Russell Crowe shooting into the night. Right, and I, I definitely... I, I, I'm trying to remember sort of the mechanics of that scene. It's definitely not out of an interest in the group. I think the group benefits from him um, taking them all out, but I don't think this is... I don't think that's quite when you realize that he might have some sort of affection for Christian Bell's character, right? I, I personally was kind of picking up on it at the dinner scene. Just because yeah. the, the way that they converse, you know, there's a there's a mutual respect because Russell Crowe sees himself in Christian Bale as well. Because if he wouldn't have made the choices that he made, he would yeah. be very similar to Christian Bale. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and it's just before that scene, I think, that Henry Fonda? Peter Fonda? Did Peter we decide? Fonda. Peter Fonda. Um, his character is killed off, and um, Christian Bale's son shows up, who Logan was Logan. following them without Christian Bale's knowing it. And I think his character does actually bring something kind of nice to the film, which is that he kind of presents that allure to the outlaw that you otherwise just wouldn't have gotten, right? Um, The film acknowledges that despite him being the villain, despite his viciousness, despite his ruthlessness, he's still pretty cool. He's exciting. He's He's he's, pretty cool. part of what we're here to watch uh, um, what did you think just briefly about the uh when he kills kevin durand who's kevin durand the so remember when he takes the silverware oh absolutely that's kevin durand that was a great scene i think that was maybe the most disturbing of anything that happens in this movie it was the most bone tomahawkish absolutely it's a fork right yep. a makeshift fork maybe no maybe it's, a it's real just fork. A classic fork just a normal fork two problems um, Two-pronged, that's what it was. That's why it maybe just looked, you know, different, but... Um, yeah, we use those for steak pokers. <laughs> I use those for, for eating. He uses them to murder. Eat <laughs> <laughs> Continuing the vampire theme. <laughs> it's... I, from what I remember, I don't think there's any music. I think they just wake up to that sound, right? Yes. Of it... Of him stab, stabbing stab, him stab, in stab, the stab, neck. Stab, 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 and, stab. and then oof. he's grabbing his neck and he's slowly bleeding out. And it's, oof. Yeah. That Strong one got stuff. me. Um, so from there, after the encounter in the pass, we go to the railroad. And what right. is quite the the climactic middle scene where we're introduced to Luke Wilson's character. Right. So this is in uh, like a Chinese labor camp. Oh, yes. This is common back then. Yeah. You know? And Luke Wilson's posse we'll talk more about Ben Foster's dislike of posses decides to um, decides that they don't, they don't want to uh, relinquish Russell Crowe's character. Um, they have some, some historical beef with him. And they um, also have electricity. They do. And, and they like channeling that into Russell Crowe. They do. And th- yeah, this is easily one of the best set pieces of the movie, right? Yes. Um, it's it's that one moment where I watched this when it originally came out, and it, it's kind of that one moment that stuck with me all these years. The the just the entire train sequence because of what yeah. happens when they flee and just there's so much Hollywood there. It's just oh, so yeah. Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those moments where you could kind of see somebody describing a western as a b movie but the the craft there is sort of what transcends trans what allows it to transcend that label and bring it up to an a because set you're just so with it yeah yeah, yeah. So the right set piece can really make something yeah absolutely um great scene do you want to dig into what happens at all or in that scene yeah uh with uh you know, I think what are you thinking i I think that's kind of the fulcrum, the the last uh, lever push before we see the relationship between Christian Bale and Russell Crowe really coalesce into a bond. Um, yeah. And I think that it's because, you know, 
he's seen him get tortured. This is what happens when the man doesn't have his his protection and when he's not, you know, controlling his outcome. Other people are trying to hurt him. Yeah. Um, and Christian Bale is a man who's kind of beaten mm. down and battered by larger entities within the film already. Um, yeah. And that maybe, you know, there could have... It comes off that there's an empathetic transition there. It's very much I a transition okay. of the film. Um, and to me, it's it's almost like a metaphor when they're running away from the, the train station um, or where the tracks are built and they're going back the other way on their horses yeah. and the tunnel's blown. That they're yeah. kind of leaving those the way that that relationship between those characters was behind in that scene yeah. it's it's kind of left all there um and, and i thought it was just a really strong use of a set piece and a metaphor and character development all together yeah. with timing to to move forward the plot and really sell yeah. me by the end because you know i i think that a lot of people in letter on the letterboxd reviews that rated the movie poorly there's not a lot of people that did but a lot of the people that did rate it poorly didn't buy the transition and mm -hmm. i think that the that the transition of their relationship happens in that scene yeah yeah and i would agree and, and it certainly doesn't really hold back once it goes in that direction no um, no it's it's all so out. if you're not with it then you're probably not going to yeah and that's your best goes. chance to get with it too that's yeah. the most action broad scene you know that's you could have yeah. put that scene in mission impossible yeah so what do you think russell crowe's character sees in christian bale's character that helps him understand what this guy is about well let's examine christian's character i guess he <laughs> was in Pennsylvania in the army. Yep. The only fight that he ever was in, he had the retreat from, and he ended up getting his foot shot off. Yeah. Um, or, By one of his own or men, his foot was we learned. shot, or his toes were shot, and there was a compromise, and they had to cut off the foot, basically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he literally says he got the short end of the stick because they didn't cut off more because you get paid by the pound. Yeah. <laughs> so he would have rather yeah. lost more so that he could have more money. Um and he really cares about his family and really loves them. Um, and the the opposite of that is Russell Crowe, very early on in town, asks a girl to run away to Mexico with him. You're right. And it's very sincere. It's one of the most sincere moments that Russell has until the end of the film. And so you're taken to mean that he really means this, and you also come to learn that it seems like there was another girl before this that either passed away or passed him by. He's familiar with what a connection feels like yeah you have to know it to long for it yes and yeah. um I, I think that he sees that christian has the things that he doesn't have l the literal opposites he's waging war against the systems present in the west at this point in time russell crowe is he is taking money with his band he is living outside of of the law he's behaving outside of the law he's pursuing value for himself regardless of its cost to other people which is exactly what the people he's taking money from are doing mm -hmm. and we see that because of what they do to christian bale's character they mm -hmm. burn his barn down because he's late in his payment even though they know that he's going to be good for it and even though that he brings in a payment they they say no and they you know beat him yeah and he he's very much what would happen if russell crowe didn't stand up and do the wrong thing for what could be the right reason to these people 
So I think that yeah. they're very simpatico characters where one is just a different, you know, the timeline A and timeline B. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to me, this is a pretty class, a pretty classic dichotomy of Westerns between um, the civilized and the savage, right? You usually see that between um, the white men and the Indians, but I think here it's more clearly... Uh, presented in terms of Christian Bale and Russell Crowe's outlaw and non-outlaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and not good and evil, not right and wrong. Um, that probably got picked up. It did. We'll fix it in post. And I think that is a, an, an interesting uh, dichotomy. Um, that sort of gives the film a little bit more of its thematic weight. Mm-hmm. Um, Russell Crowe's character is maybe a bit more easily defined as um, a bad guy, mm-hmm. but I think it's much harder to label Christian Bale's character as good, if you were to use the words good and bad or right and wrong, to kind of explain what they're more broadly representing um and i think that's why the word yes. civilized and savage civilized and savage come to mind um for for me what comes to mind is uh stro- uh i guess a strong father is what christian bale represents yeah and and russell crowe represents a strong leader that's interesting i didn't think about it in as personal of terms i thought about Christian Bale's character realizing about the importance of combating the the kind of anarchic spirit that Russell Crowe embodies. Yes. Realizing that well, without people without people being held accountable, without without order, there's nothing stopping somebody from coming to burn down your barn when you don't pay your bills. But his right? manifestation of that is to teach his son the right way to behave in the world because he wants the best outcome for his son and he wants his son to have the best opportunities. Right. It's But I guess it's weird to me that, like, at this at the heart of it is sort of self-interest in a way. And that's mm-hmm. why I think he's an interesting character is that it's yes. not so much that, like, he's saying it's the right thing to do to put the to punish these guys. It's that if you tolerate this, if you turn away, nothing's safe. Nothing's, nothing's protected. But, so I think there's something interesting there because Russell Crowe takes his horses. Yeah. Gives him back. Takes his, both his sons and his time. Pays him back. Gets some of his cows killed. Pays him back. Yeah. The people that he's buying the land from literally burn his barn down and say tough shit when he tries to pay them. Figure it out. So the villain, in context, is acting admirably and evenly and fairly with Christian Bale. Russell Crowe is. And the people who he comes to work for, Christian, yeah. who Christian Bale comes to work for, are the people that hurt him, and he's trying to take the bad guy in who's only treated him well. Now, it's yeah. almost that Che Guevara conversation. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's very interesting. It's just kind of a Wild West, you know, take on it. Yeah. Um, I have not seen the original movie. I don't think I have. I, yeah. If I did, I was really young, and it was with my grandpa when he was binging yeah. his John Wayne's and his westerns. Yeah, exactly. I'd be curious to watch it and see if there were any liberties taken 
Um, oh, I'm sure that there were. Right? You would but, just kind of I'm, assume. I'm, I'm um, also certain that there's, you know, he must be building off of some really strong character stuff because it's, right. it's strong enough to make a class, uh, to do a remake off of. Yeah. You know, and, and he picks a good westerns to base his films off of. Logan yeah. with Shane. Yeah. I know you haven't had a chance to see it yet, but I'll, yeah. I'll get that to you as soon as possible because it's a really, it's a great western. Yeah. Really well aged. Um, so... Uh, I guess we're we're kind of done with the train. We're done with the um, the canyon scene or the canyon path scene. Um, there's, you know, we can talk about the posse while they're off alone, if you want. I, I don't have too much to say other than, you know, Ben Foster's great when he gets a chance. Yeah, just gritty intimidation. Great stuff. And and beautiful cinematography when they're all riding their horses through the fields chasing and then yeah. give them chase. Um, yeah. So let's get back to that town. We're at the end? Back to contention. Here we are. Um, do you like where this goes? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? I love it. There so we go. Much. I love the name. It's so great. It's just on the nose in the most delicious of writing ways. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um... I know some people on Letterboxd felt like this is where um, suspension of disbelief bothered them. Mm-hmm. Because oh, they're absolutely. running throughout town, nobody can land a shot. Did that take you out of it at all? No, I also like these films. Um, really, really briefly seen, not too many people know about them. Uh, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, there's some soldiers that shoot these laser guns that never seem to hit any character that matters to the yeah. screenplay. So, no, it didn't bother me. To me, if, if, you, if you're bothered by that kind of thing, you're probably just not going to like very many movies. Or you need to strongly follow realism. Yeah. You know, because suspension of disbelief is required in all films. And yeah. Sometimes, it's in the service of something else. Sometimes you watch a film and, and you can't suspend your disbelief. I think that um, a film that got in, where you couldn't suspend your own disbelief that and that was more on you than the film was Hail Caesar. And I think mm. that the same thing happened for me with uh, Christopher Robin. Ooh. So yeah. you know when we get there, we can talk more about that in Christopher Robin. But so there, there is you know legitimacy. Everyone's going to react differently to stuff. But this is definitely something where you're watching a western. Right. The horses, for some reason, aren't ever going to get shot unless it's someone's horse that doesn't matter or unless this guy needs to be put onto his feet so he can do something heroic. And they're not going to get shot until it's a more uh, emotionally salient scene for them to be shot in. Right. Take it for granted that they aren't getting hit because we have something else to focus on. Or because we're building towards something. You know, there's always a purpose. Yeah. Um... I like where this scene goes. I had mentioned the remake just because I am curious to know if in the original, just how it played out. Um, oh, yeah. I'd love you know, to see that gunplay scene at the end, to if me, there is one. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I think this is a, pr- a pretty grim, pretty bleak movie for the most part. Um, like, I'd just be curious to know if Christian Bale's character dies in the original or not. Yes. Um, obviously, I could just Google that in 10 seconds. But the, um, where's the fun in that? Exactly. Exactly. I'll, I'll go watch the movie. Um, I think it's a pretty cynical ending. I don't find it terribly optimistic. I, I find it honest. The man who takes... Uh, I, 
I don't remember the exact Bible quote, but it's to the man who takes, everything will be given, or to the man who has much, everything will be given, and to the man who has little or doesn't take anything, everything will be taken. Uh, you know, it's it's. I think it's Matthew. Mm. It's it's very much kind of a film like that. You know, and there's a there's some social formulas that prove that rule to be true. I think it's called the Matthew principle. Yeah, it's an mm. economics term, Matthew principle. Yeah. Um, and Christian Bale didn't have anything. And he yeah. had everything taken away by the end. His life. Yeah. And Russell Crowe had a lot. And he took more. You know, I, I, I think that maybe my favorite thing to happen in the movie, not my favorite scene, but just my favorite thing to happen, is watching him shoot his own men as he's standing over Christian Bale. After he oh, yeah. climbs out of the cage that Christian put him in. So yeah. that he can get redemption for his friend who just put him in a jail cell on a train. Yeah. And he wasn't worried about it because he'd broken out a few times already. It wasn't a big yeah. deal. It became more about him knowing that if he does this, then he'll be able to reclaim his social worth and his family and be able to maintain his land and have respect for himself. And that yeah. became worth more to Russell Crowe than anything else. And I thought that that was a really touching transition. Yeah. Um, and when Christian gets shot and then Russell goes on that tear, that was just hell a good filmmaking. That was just yeah. awesome to watch. What a good yeah. time. I could watch that on some YouTube repeat. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess I was, um, on one hand, you know, kind of under understanding that Russell Crowe's character has come to respect Christian Bale's f familial values, but also I think the more cynical angle is that his his self-definition de self as an outlaw comes from knowing that without there being somebody like Christian Bale, um, he, he doesn't have, you know, the, the existence and lifestyle that he does. Um, mm -hmm. to me, that's, it's the more, to me, that's the more cynical outlook on this film is that there. Well, that's true, but mm -hmm. you could also say that if he wasn't who he is, there's a very good possibility he would be the Christian Bale character. I find that I find that harder to to conceive of. Um, when he you don't think he says, that he could have been involved in the war, or lost a limb, and had to find a way to own property and turn it into a profit to have a family. It, I think it's hard to connect the familial values that Christian Bale's character. So so has when you hear Russell Crowe say something like, I don't think there's any difference between, um, you know, shooting a man and shooting a rabbit, something like that. I think it's harder it's harder for me to, to sort of think about I, him. I definitely agree with that statement. But what I would say is in the film, that doesn't hold true for his right. own character. Yeah. He reacts very strongly to Christian's death. So that's not yeah. a true it's true about the men that he chooses to kill. Right. And the other thing, I think that I took a lot of emotional weight from that bar scene where he asks the girl to go away with him to Mexico. So yeah. I knew that he wanted a, a family and to be a family man. And yeah. that that kind of, for me, that underpinned and gave um, context to every interaction. Right. There, there forward. So I, I think that what you're saying makes sense, but I also had a counter argument the entire time rolling in my head of, he wants this family. He wants to run away to Mexico. And he's doing this because we don't know what had just happened to him. 
Yeah. And that Christian Bale is doing this because of what happened to him. You know, yeah. it's very much a victim of circumstance, sort of a yeah. uh, Western, which, you know, time, yeah. that's how it was back then. Everyone was yeah. a victim of circumstance. And that's just what makes him a more interesting character, right? He's not just this the standard, upright, righteous guy. Um, he's very much, you know, the damaged hero of sorts. Literally, physically damaged, mm-hmm. without a foot or a leg or whatever. And not getting into these fights out of righteousness or because of his moral comfort moral compass it's because he he needs the money mm-hmm. because he's getting pulled into these situations um so it makes him more interesting to watch yes it does and uh one ben foster gets shot Whoo! that's one of the top good moment top scenes out of all the films all the classics that we've watched and all the other movies that we've watched this personal thing this week yeah it's Strong acting mm. from Ben Foster and, and really selling it mm. on Russell Crowe. Yeah. Um, while we're talking about Ben Foster, just another favorite moment to go back a little bit is when right after Russell Crowe gets captured and Ben Foster's on his horse riding out of town and he says, this town's going to burn. Yeah, that's and awesome. he runs out so of town good. and there's this kind of wide shot. There isn't a lot of wide shots when, when you think about westerns. It, it. it works. I think it's better in a way when it's used a little more sparingly here. It kind of capitalizes or punctuates. It's yeah. wide. You see him just out on the horizon. I think there are a couple like that when he's at a distance just waiting, mm-hmm. right? There's some suspense yeah. in the image. Those are great that, shots. Those were some of my favorite moments. So that's kind of that Spielbergian, right? Or Spielbergian, um, where they're using uh, the the camera to show uh, a story element, which is that Ben Foster yeah. is kind of the dog nipping at their heels the entire yeah. way. I, I wrote something about him being hemmed out of the film almost entirely and, and that he's always in the chase mode. So it right. provides this excellent pace to the film that kept me from kind of getting lulled into being docile and not paying attention. Yeah. I was always gripped by are they going to catch him? Are they going to leave yeah. traces for him? Are are they fleeing too fast that they're going to get hurt? Or, you know, like, yeah. and they, they you know, it, it capitalizes in, in many different moments where the train tunnel, the canyon scene, um, they are exhausted from trying to get a head start, so they leave Kevin Durand alone with them, or, uh, yeah. and then Kevin Durand falls asleep and he gets killed. You know, it's just, it's great. It's just great uh, plot work keeping yeah. this character at the edges and allowing him to chase yeah. while the middle characters are or you know the lead characters are chasing contention yeah yeah you get you get the images early of him at a distance too far away to shoot within range to be dangerous and then you stop getting them but you remember him so you know mm-hmm. he could be just out of and the you're frame like, where is he because the way that russell crowe's character continues to bring it up or or he might passively make a sound where you wonder if that's a call to his gang or not or he's gonna go take a piss and you're like is he gonna signal his gang i you know yeah yeah it's that kind of hitchcock technique right of like Mm -hmm. you can't have suspense if you first don't know what it is you're waiting for or what you're watching for well you can but only he can do it well (laughs) <laughs> right, but, like, it's kind of the different... Like, his example was, you know, the bomb under the table, right? Where the difference between su- surprise and suspense is, like, if you if are you watching... If you there, yeah. Yeah, if you kind watch like two guys... Where, you know, the body is there. Exactly. That's exa- I think that's probably what it was in reference to. Oh, yeah. Um, knowing that Ben Foster's 
just out of range, the just on the periphery. The it's great stuff. I like that analogy. Good movie. It's a great movie. So uh, we agree on this one. We this agree. This is no Hail Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we will finish up with Master and Commander, uh, and then we'll do in between there we've got princess mononoke still mission impossible fallout blind spotting rogue nation and a short conversation about sharp objects episodes one and two uh after a short break we'll be right back we are back and ready to discuss our next movie which is princess mononoke this is a film that i grew up loving I thought it was basically Star Wars, but with awesome mythology when I was in about third or fourth grade. I was very excited about it. I would rent it from the Hollywood video every single day with my kids' pass, and I would go home and watch it, if not once, twice. And I particularly liked when he would shoot the arms and heads off of henchmen. (laughs) That was pretty startling this time around. I also grew up watching it quite a bit over at a friend's house over and over, and I don't remember it being... As violent, I can't believe I watched this when I did. But this is my first time seeing it on a big screen. We saw it together. It was at, my first time seeing it on a big uh, screen as well. Theater here in Seattle. Um, played great on the big screen. It's absolutely Beautiful. the way to that see it. That score. Ooh, oh yeah. Definitely a plus. Audience seemed to love it. Um, well, we were in a packed house with people that knew that it was. It was gonna be there, practically so. sold out. Yeah. These people knew what they were in for it sounded and, like. and that was one of three nights of it so i can only yeah. imagine yeah yeah printing some money there g kids yeah um absolutely so personal we, favorite or of yours yeah top, top four on letterboxd yeah right next to uh, high praise the dark knight and pacific rim um capitalized by uh mm. the secrets in their eyes it's the end of my favorites and i don't That's know right. if you've seen that one but we might have to get i have not get seen that one that's been that for me I've been very intrigued as I've seen that on the top four. It, it is a blind spot yeah. for many people. Um, it is. I was turned on to it, uh, just brief tangent, by John Favreau. Who really? said that it was oh, okay. his favorite film, I believe, on the Nerdist podcast. Interesting. And nice. I was like, I have to, because I love John Favreau's films um, quite a bit. I, I think that he's a very stylized filmmaker that's really good at visually telling a story. Um and I think that Chef is probably some of my favorite comfort oh, food that I've ever great seen. Movie. So, um, yeah, I, I just had to see it for myself, and I 100% agreed, and I couldn't believe how much I love it. It's very much a detective story, but it's also everything that I love about philosophy and whether or not someone should live and how they should live and if that is mm. better than dying. And Oh, it's, it's great. We're, we're going to have to get to it. <laughs> and I love Cuban sandwiches, so... Yeah. John Favreau's recommendation you have to. to Cuban sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> I've never described a movie in that way, but it's a good movie. Back to Princess Mononoke. Indeed. Where do, where should we begin? Well, we, um, we watched the dub version, so we did. did you get mm. taken out by it or not? Not at all. I have been very taken out by dubbed versions of other uh, Miyazaki movies. I saw The Wind Rises, who yes. had... Um, the voice work there included stars like John Krasinski, um, among some others. Um, so that, uh, yeah. we had a brief conversation about this before yeah. or after the movie, um, and you said you hadn't seen much other work from him. From Miyazaki. Yes. Uh, 
and Correct. I, I think that the wind rises or the wind also rises. I, I one can't of the remember two. It's yeah. Correct title, um, but is not a movie to see before you've seen the rest of his work because it is his mm-hmm. last work and it is a very uh, personal piece of art to him and it's a very personal story about Japan. And I, I think that like, have you seen Graveyard of the Fireflies? I have not. If, if you haven't seen that, then you. It's it's really cheap to say, but I think that you don't understand the emotional stakes that are going on. There's a conversation happening between all of his films, yeah. And if you don't have the entire underlying context that, yeah, he cap, you know, he finishes everything with, then you're really missing out on what he built the entire company and stories and cartoons about. Right, that makes sense. Probably should give it a fair shot once I've seen some of the others first. Yeah. Uh, we'll revisit it. Sounds like a cat's getting sick behind us. <laughs> you hear that? <clears throat> sick kitty? Listeners, we have a feline in the background coughing up a hairball. <laughs> Just one moment. <laughs> in a previous episode, you did get to hear her rattle her toy. <laughs> her name is Casserole. She could be a guest at some point. She's a guest right now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there it is. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> Go pick that up with your tongue, Michael. <laughs> All right. I'm not hearing too much chatter from the peanut gallery there. <laughs> so let's let's dig back into Mononoke here. Um, so it worked for you. Um, it, made, it basically worked for me. There were a few moments where I did feel like it was dated. Mm. Not that the dubbing was bad, but that it was dated, and that I almost would have preferred to see a authentic, as was originally intended, um, yeah. audio quality of vo- of voice acting and reading the subtitles. Yeah, I've never seen uh, a version of the movie um, with subtitles, you know, with its original sound, which I I really feel like I'm probably missing out. Um, you know, having seen it as a kid, I think that probably helped me access it. But um, if anyone stood out voice work wise, it was probably Billy Bob Thornton, me just too. being the yeah. most distinctive voice of them all, and um, just so charismatic. Right, he's probably the most conspicuous. Billy Crudup and Mini Driver, though, actually, I thought worked pretty darn well. Mm-hmm. Those felt pretty seamless and natural to me, um, as well as. I'm not, uh, is it Claire Danes who voices Princess Mononoke? I believe it is, yeah. Also pretty organic. Um, so no complaints there, but Billy Bob. Yeah, definitely the strongest <laughs> and most charismatic for me. Yeah, um, yeah. So, mm. uh, Boar uh, attacks a village. Uh, our young hero protects the village at great cost to himself, getting infected with um, a demon's touch, corrupting his... Uh, I believe it's his right arm mm-hmm. um, and giving him immense strength, but also uh, at points inability to control himself. Um, he journeys and cuts his braid. He cuts his hair, um, leaves behind his people. He can never go back, um, which is, there's very much a criticism of the honor culture of Japan. Um, and he journeys to Iron Town, yep. which is very much a, uh, criticism of Japan uh, modernizing itself after spending 400 years um, 
keeping itself off of the world stage and not having really any interaction with trade or with uh, foreign Western nations specifically. Um, and it there's a very uh, nuanced conversation about what the merits are of the old honor culture and what the merits are of Irontown. Mm. Uh, in Irontown, specifically, we see how the lepers and the women are treated very equally yeah. and uh, very much empowered and treated. Um, com- everyone's treated very fairly. And um, in the honor culture, they, you know, they all were upset that to honor their culture, they had to to do the right thing by their standards they had to turn their backs on him and send him away right and he can never come back um so there's you know i am very unqualified to really dig into it but um there is an episode of dan carlin's hardcore history that recently came out that digs into some of the stuff that is being wrestled with within princess mononoke and some of the deeper ideas and historical um facts and implications that it had on society that I think people should definitely dig into if they're I think all of us are probably fans of Princess Mononoke and if Mm. you want to have a deeper appreciation and actually understand the the social commentary that's happening it's a great and super easy understandable way to get in there yeah Um, without any study of it I think anybody with um any anybody that that values the the glory of nature and the environment, I think would would get something quite immediately from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the most memorable moments for me are the ones in the forest. I can't remember if there's like a a name of the forest or the woods where they are spending the most of their time. Um, but for an animated picture, there's a, a lushness and a vibrancy to most of the time spent in the woods themselves and to see um the you know the co- water and oh absolutely the river and uh mm. when the wolf is dragging the cow out of out of the river after they knock it knock down the army yeah you know, just those moments of sheer awe and and this yeah. weird mythological realism yeah yeah it's i think it's something that's pretty hard to pull off in an animated feature to bring about some kind of like uh, sense of tactility you know yes what this would feel like um that i think princess mononoke is one of the few animated movies that i can think of that really kind of gives me that sense that this is something i could i can imagine what this feels like um and that you know this this conflict between something so beautiful so lush in conflict with the um modernity that iron town is is bringing about um i think is something that um feels as you know as relevant today as um it did when this came out and um will continue to be um what what did you think about the gods um and the the way that um miyazaki used them to criticize nature as well because they don't just criticize the old way and the new way of of humans they also criticize nature They, they they make it um beautiful and they you, you certainly feel for it, but they also give you the monkeys. They also yeah. give you the boars. Right. They they also give you. Uh, I can't remember if her name is Naga, the the queen wolf, the the you know the wolf god. Um, right. But you know they're they each are deeply flawed creatures, and the right. the most powerful of them with a touch takes life away or gives it. 
Yeah, the the monkeys or the gorillas or whatever they are. I kind of forget like what it, they don't have a lot I of believe that they're dialogue. Monkeys, I think I think that in the in the, the dubbed version they're the yeah. monkey tribe. Yeah. I don't remember really the dialogue. They don't have that much dialogue, but there are certainly key moments if, Give if you're us going the to understand. Human. We want to eat his flesh. That's about it. Well, they want to eat human flesh. Yeah, that's Yeah. That's a pretty big cuz it's really like I just mean that like it's one scene, right? Yeah. I think where we kind of get like what it is that the monkeys are about or what they want. Um Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they what they want is they mm-hmm. want the forest back. They want the trees. So yeah. they want more for themselves. Yeah. What does Iron Town want? More for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um I interestingly this viewing I can't remember the name, but the uh the I, I feel like it's actually an ibix, but I believe that it's called an antelope in the film that um, he rides. I, I like oh. really felt mm. a lot for that character. Just oh, this, yeah. Yeah, I, I, more than any viewing before, I was just really on board with his entire story. definitely deserves a place in the pantheon Heroic of movie steeds. pets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's not a pet. He's more than a pet. He's but a you know what I mean. steed. He is. Um... Yeah, you're rooting for him. Yeah, <laughs> when he when he hurts his uh, ankle and he he keeps following him anyways. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. How about the romance? Um, I was on board with the romance. I um, well, it still pulls on my heartstrings like yeah. I'm in fourth grade. Yeah. <laughs> it um, it feels like a timeless romance, right? Yeah. Um, it feels like a timeless movie. Every, everything about it does. Yeah. Um. It somehow feels kind of like it's it's from the the ancient past and of the present at the same time, right? Yeah, it could this be like come out in today. fifty years. Yeah, you you couldn't convince me that it's impossible for it to happen in fifty years. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and I think the animation itself is incredible, right? That's why anybody who knows nothing about um, Japan now historically any of the thematic interests oh yeah that's why display. a young um, kid can just go this is awesome that's why we watched it yeah. right i, I mean I but we were boys and we things. were like look at him kill stuff yeah 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 <laughs> these are gods um, look at the wolf god <laughs> yeah um <laughs> that girl got shot in the face but she was wearing a mask so she's alive and this is awesome <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty vivid yeah um i i think the strongest animation sequence is at the end when they shoot the head off oh yeah and he's Which looked for really head. good on oh, a big looks, screen. Looks very good. Yeah. What'd you think of that animation though? When he's looking for his head. Great stuff. I was on board, one hundred percent. The the uh, the forest disappearing under the black ooze. Is... It's pretty good stuff. I think everybody was on board with it. Um, I believe there was clapping at the end. Oh yeah. That was a nice this was touch. a triumphant. Yeah, I, I think ending. I remember clapping and looking at you like, "Are you not going to clap?" <laughs> <laughs> I kind of get confused because we watch so many movies, like if that one had clapping or not. But I'm pretty sure that's the one that had clapping, yeah. And it felt right. Yeah, I, I think that um, if you haven't branched out into Miyazaki films and you really like uh, the beauty depicted in the naturalism of Princess Mononoke, a good place to start would be um, Pompoco um, or Porco Rosso. Yeah. Both are, are really beautiful depictions of nature. And I think that Porco Rosso specifically is absolutely necessary viewing before the wind rises. You, if you don't see that first, you 
you haven't begun to see what he has to say about Japan's history with airplanes and um, characters being heroic and um, dishonorable. In yeah. Them. Probably just a matter of personal taste, too, mm-hmm. right? Somebody's really interested in um, technology, airplanes, aircraft, air flight, versus, you know, the... Um, the nature on display in Mononoke. That's just more my thing. Um, yes, but, but so in I would Porco certainly appreciate Rosso, it. It's very much like a tailspin almost. Do you remember Tailspin the cartoon? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's kind of got that quality of like childishness to it where there's yeah. these beautiful lush Italian landscapes and these fantastic island getaways and this beautiful mm. scenic uh, oceans and the clouds. It's just it's, it's a great time. And then if, yeah. you, if you want the opposite of that, if you want to dig more into thematic and um, meta commentary about Japan's history, uh, Grave of the Fireflies or w- would probably be the best way to navigate into what Miyazaki's kind of uh, trouble with his past is. Right. And trouble mm. with, you know, the dead. Right. We just might have to do a Miyazaki theme at some point. We may have to. <laughs> All right. Uh, you want to dig into Fallout? So, so we're on to Mission and Fallout, which might just naturally involve Rogue Nation. Yeah, as we'll we just see fit. intermittently. Um, I'm generally immensely positive on it. I don't think it's a perfect film by any means, but I think that it's one of the best action movies in terms of approachability and the way it's going to age that I've seen in the last decade. What's your mission statement? I completely agree. Very much enjoyed Rogue Nation. Enjoyed most of the characters. Enjoyed the set pieces. I think the suspense of disbelief oh, was, was harder. Oh, you were talking about Fallout. Oh, yeah. I thought you said Rogue Nation. No, I said we could intermittently oh, got jump it. back and forth to Rogue Nation. Anyways, most of what I just said applies to Fallout as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I've got some harsh criticisms for Rogue Nation. Oof, okay. Uh, yeah, so Fallout... I really liked Fallout. Saw it in IMAX. I think that's the way to see it, as you did. And you saw it in the best IMAX screen in all of Washington mm-hmm. State, which is the Pacific Science Center IMAX screen. My that first has, time there. Uh, kind of vertical seating, so that when there's any sort of a interaction with height, you mm-hmm. end up getting mm-hmm. the listlessness that makes you feel like you are also mm-hmm. at that height. Yeah, the screen's tilted back at just the right way, so your your eyes are looking at it from the and right the seat's angle. Kind of tilted. Yeah, so the angles are, are are just right. Um, great way to see it. Um, I loved it. I thought it was fun. It was a great time. Um, what was your favorite stunt? My favorite stunt was was probably the ending. I don't know that we can we can go into sequential order if you want, but I do no, think let's just hop uh, around. I do think the the finale was uh, was my favorite bit of the movie. Um, some people thought the thought the helicopter sequence um, was 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 too much for them. I thought that's when I was getting the most out of the IMAX experience. Was when I was really getting when that screen went wide. I'm really IMAX, getting yeah. the depth of those cliffs, the sense of how high they are off the ground. So um, if it's my... too preposterous for you, I get it. I had fun with it. But you're not having a good time if you find it too preposterous. My favorite mm. feature of the helicopter fight was the use of the tracer rounds Mm. because he's you know he's shooting Mm. an aircraft and he's legitimately using a light machine gun 
in this helicopter going back and forth to each side of the tail using tracer rounds so that he mm. can see where his bullets are ending up based on where he's aiming so that he can try to dial it in. And I thought that that was just mm. a great use of authenticity in yeah. a film that is just as authentic as it is. There's not a chance that they survived the halo junk. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um. So I, I think my favorite stunt work is actually or my favorite you know big scene is the halo jump but my favorite stunt coordinator setup um is definitely the scene that immediately follows it in the bathroom oh yeah that fight is just one hell of a fight it's a great fight mm. in just normal 2d screens and it's a excellent fight in imax it is good that's when you first sort of get a sense for why uh henry cavill's character's boss calls him a hammer right you get his blunt strength his just sheer force and he's um, a scalpel i use a hammer great line it proves to be true the sound is good every punch just just sounds like it hurts doesn't just look like it's something you're gonna feel a day later on Mm -hmm. the first and second viewing i didn't even have the time to notice if the sound effects didn't sound real there's some yeah. movies I've watched recently where I just, the, knowing how fake the sound effects sounded really yeah. bothered me. And yeah. I'm sure that that could be true in this, but it's so seamlessly edited in that it just yeah. accentuated every strength that it had instead of taking yeah. it away in any way. There actually were, for me, there were a couple of moments where I thought that uh, it did seem out of place. Um, just one example that comes to mind was Henry Cavill. I couldn't even tell you, or I couldn't tell you where in the film this was. He pulls a knife out of a cloth sheath and there is a shing kind of sound is there when he stabs alec baldwin could be preceding that oh when Um, he's when he pulls the knife out for the foreshadowing scene yeah oh i bet you're right i just didn't notice it because i was busy wondering why they were showing me that yeah exactly this is so out of place we put this here that is really like one of the last kinds of things that's like gonna turn me off from a movie is yeah, whether or not that's, that's your right. Best like, criticism. <laughs> that's this all is I got. A very good movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna hack a star off for that. Um, that one caught my eye, but it's like that kind of stuff. I could I could kind of care less about. So I still like the sound of it. Let, let's dig in. Uh, you gave it a four. I gave it a four and a half. Why the four? I th- or did you raise it? It's still a four. Uh, my. So I can the, talk you into it, is what you're saying. I think you could. I think the, the question that I keep kind of having for myself, I mean, there there are a couple of kind of specifics that we could get into okay. uh, uh, as, as we talk. I guess kind of the broader question that I think Keith Ulick also kind of had. Um, He's a very good critic. Yeah, I haven't read his re- read his review. I just kind of heard that he was another, maybe one other dissenting opinion. Um, I like this overall. I'm not a dissenting opinion, but, you know, his question was, this craftsmanship is great, but in service of what? Um, is there something, you know, is, what's what's beneath this craft um, that, 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 that makes this resonant? Um, mm, I would say that, um, that that's a worthy criticism of film, but there's also a juxtaposing question that is just as good, which is, did a lot of people find pleasure, joy, and um, escapism in this film? And I think that that question, the answer is yes. And and so you have a decent argument for why the other question is valid, 
but um, not necessarily the whole reason why you need to interpret a film. Sometimes a movie is just good escapism um, in more than a social commentary. There are movies yeah. that do both, and those are incredible films, and we'll talk about yeah. them in 20 years and want to revisit them. But this yeah. is something where you can't wait to ask your dad what he thought about it. Right. This is one of those movies. This is Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, where you're just waiting to talk to your dad or your brother or whoever the guy is in your family or or a close friend who just likes to zone out and watch movies that just let him have some moment of escapism because he needs it because he's got a boring job or he works really hard and he just kind of needs something to have fun and this is one of those things that just really brings about fun and there you know there's probably a, a decent argument that you know I mean, Ving Rhames is my favorite supporting actor in the entire film. He's and good. I would certainly love to have more of him. But I think that having less of him accentuates his performance when he's on the screen. Um, kind of like the Ben Foster, always at the heels. You're always wondering where Ving is. And he is the entire uh, crux of, of how the film is built. The film mm. is not a film without Ving Rhames' character in the very beginning. Um, and you know what what do you think the social commentary question that that keith is posing has to or or the you know the worth that the picture brings to um people's conversations right now where where do you think that lands in in this dichotomy well i think if you have films that can be both entertaining sheer and feel like sheer escapism yet upon closer examination have um ideas worth contemplation it's easy to to want to give that kind of film a deeper respect or a higher rating if that's how you want to evaluate a film versus a movie that is perhaps equally entertaining but that lacks any um emotional backbone or you know interest idea-wise um i'm thinking about spielberg let me ask you a question just to follow so you're saying that there's no emotional or are you saying that keith didn't think that there's an emotional backbone or that you didn't um i I actually i I don't want to speak for him i didn't read his review to be honest i just kind of know that like that's kind of his general standpoint i kind of saw that on letterboxd or twitter or something um i do kind of agree with that i think like my my example might be something like most of spielberg's kind of popcorn movies where something like E.T., a lot of people might, or Jaws, people might describe as escapism. You know, these are the popcorn movies that ruined the 70s. Um, I'd say Minority Reports. Or Minority Reports. Escapism. Um, But you could also argue that while many, many people might just watch E.T. for the story about a kid meeting an alien, it captures the essence of a childhood. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. In, in a really emotionally in, involving way. Um, I don't think I will remember anything about Mission Impossible Fallout other than its craft 10 years from now. Hmm. And that's okay. I do think like there is great value in just great craft, great form. That's well, part of what oh, yeah, movies absolutely. are about. That's, I, not, that's not a bad thing, but I do think there's something about a movie that that manages to do both. I don't think... Um, 
there's as much sort of beneath the surface here that's really letting me connect with it, you know, in a deep way. That's understandable. <laughs> I I have been a long time Ving Rhames fan. And mm. This is the first huge film that he's ever been the reason why a plot happens the yeah. entire time where he's been the most immensely respected character yeah by everyone on all sides basically yeah. um and it's the first movie i've ever seen where i got really really emotional at the end oh. because in the beginning it's definitely a tom cruise film but at the end yeah. when the credits roll who's the top billed actor is it big rames it is I love it. And I mm-hmm. I was just really happy because I, I've yeah. just kind of been in the side, like just growing up, I always loved Ving Rhames and Michael Clark Duncan's characters because they always had this immense amount of, of emotion that was always underneath the surface. There was just something about the way that they played their characters that always brought me uh, almost tears to my eyes when I was a kid. And they, they still have, Ving still has that ability today in his work. And I was really glad that they captured what i saw in this film and i so i i think that there's absolute value to everything you're saying but there's i think a juxtaposing viewpoint which is just this is the first time we got ving rames as as a emotional core that that the entire that an entire huge hundred million dollar film is built around yeah and Mm -hmm. there's value to that too yeah yeah I think that makes complete sense, and I think if if there is anything at the heart of it, um, more you know that you could describe a little more broadly than Ving Rhames himself, it's it's friendship, right, between these guys. Yes, um, and, and I think like that 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 deserves attention for sure. It does, um, and some something that like it's that's been earned over this franchise, right? One hundred percent. Simon Pegg's character entered, I think, in like uh, Mission Impossible the third? Three. Yeah. Same um, as um, Michelle Moynihan, right? Exactly, and we've been, so we've Abrams. been with these characters for First a few movies now. Film. Um, in the last one, in Rogue Nation, Simon Pegg uh, was the character whose life was at stake. Um, right, he gets captured by Solomon Lane. I don't, I don't remember if he's captured exactly, but he's Solomon Lane's got him towards but the end or for, something. Right? For me, I, there was no stakes there. Ooh, okay. Per- personally, okay. I just I yeah. knew that Simon was going to be fine because he's Simon, and um, I I knew separately that um, Tom Cruise loves him, loves having him as a producer on his films, and loves making films oh, yeah. with him. So there's no way he was going to get have any risk happen to him. Um, and I I think I'd already seen it but didn't remember it, so I just didn't take it seriously. I was more concerned about yeah. throwing lace to do out the window. See, so, so that's the thing, right? Is like. It's sheer fun. It's 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 escapism. It's entertainment. And at the same time, we say to ourselves, "Yeah, but like, I don't take it seriously." Like that to me, that's like the weird thing about movies like this, right? I, it's like, I took Fallout's um, chase scenes very seriously in the moment. Mm-hmm. Like outside, if you asked me before I entered the movie or after I watched the movie, if I knew those chase scenes were absurd and that there's no reason to pay attention to the stakes in them, I would have said, "Duh." But when you're in there, those engines are roaring, and you're just darting along with them, with that great drone camera work. You're just in the moment, and it it is yeah. escapism, and that's what's it, that's what's fascinating. 
that escapism can be done so well that there's an argument that all those other things that we've decided about what makes f film great, right? Like when we get into Master and Commander, everything we're going to say is and that's great about it is going to be nothing that's present in this movie. Yeah. And that speaks to the craft. And I think that um, the editor, the cinematographer, and the director are just a, a budding trifecta of yeah. action films if they choose to continue on together. The editor and the cinematographer have done relatively nothing outside of this. I, I kind of did a deep dive into what they've done. And if they wanted to make a trifecta, they could probably you know make a good living from studios and make a, a lot of happy consumers. Yeah. And a yeah. lot of happy... Uh, fathers of film lovers everywhere <laughs> yeah yeah it is kind of fun to you know to think about this movie as kind of pushing the boundaries of ridiculousness you think about that helicopter sequence and oh god the, i remember the, watching um, the commercial where the helicopter is rolling towards him and i was like he's dead this movie is bullshit if he's not dead yeah <laughs> the but the helicopter the, once you're in the movie you're like i don't care he's alive <laughs> right the helicopter is hanging on by the cable that's you know hooked on one rock it slips it catches the next rock let's not it even talk about again. how cg heavy and terrible that looked but right? for some reason it didn't matter it keeps it keeps happening how ridiculous could this be but it could be a headshot right like in a way like it's kind of the greatest testament to like the magic of movies is like yeah. this is so preposterous and yet i'm Amazing. totally in it i'm enjoying it um, that the craft can be just that that sharp that that you buy into it despite it being so just ridiculous what was your favorite uh vehicle choreography probably Let's maybe go through the set pieces, just so I'm not like listing what comes to mind. Um, so it, I'm thinking about the, the motorcycle sequence, Halo jump. Yep. Uh, then, which features lightning storm, uh, the harsh landing. Yep. Then we get some really cool stunt choreography with Vanessa Kirby, who is very beautiful and a very good actress in this movie. Um, we go on to, let's see. Um, I think that the next one is my my favorite piece of vehicle work, which is the um, the heist of um, the shoot. What's his name? Solomon Lane. Solomon Lane. The heat yeah. homage. Yeah. Okay. So we get the fake. We get the fake. Oh, the plan. Okay. Okay. First, and yeah, then yeah. we get the the real plan, and that's yeah. what I loved. When boom, hit the truck, back up, dump yeah. the guys out. Uh, drive yeah. down the uh, the alleyway, hop in the motorcycle, drive yeah. away. Uh, he takes his way to the boat, um, and that you know it just capitalizes uh, once again in that opening the garage and the cops there, and he has to make the choice. And oh, yeah. I just I love that whole sequence. It was almost Dark Knightish. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I was thinking of Heat, right? When they all have the the hockey mm, masks yes. on. Um, they're you know, taking down these armored cars like that. That's, that's where that's it's all it been stolen mind. from. Is yeah, heat. and I'm sure and, that there's a movie before Heat that Michael Mann stole it from that we yeah. just don't know about yet. Just, just great scenes, you know. Why? And, I don't know why from, something so simple as a hockey mask can just work so well, but it does. From there, um, we move into a chase with um, the police, and then we move into um, uh, Rebecca Ferguson shooting the car. He tells everyone to get out the car beside Solomon Lane, chasing with Rebecca Ferguson, hits Rebecca Ferguson. 
um, then they meet up, they do the switchover shootout in the underground where Simon Pegg dresses up as Solomon Lane and Alec Baldwin's character gets killed off. Um, Sadly. And then we move on to a uh, motorcycle chase scene. Dude, I thought that came previously. No, the, yeah, the but... motorcycle chase scene was after the alleyway. That's right. Yeah. Um, so then there's an... Is that when he goes to meet back up with Vanessa Kirby and tells her that he has Solomon Lane still, and then uh, Rebecca Ferguson's watching him from across the river, and then they go have a conversation in the middle of the trees. Right. Yes. Mm. Okay, so mm. then our next scene would be... What is the next stunt scene after that? Oh, the chase. Mm. Him chasing Henry Cavill over rooftops. Oh, yeah. Yes. So we're out, off of, buildings. we're out of vehicles until the helicopter now. Yeah. Um, and then we... Uh, so the one of the only um, continuity errors that I found while watching the second time, Ooh. when he uh, after the elevator when he climbs up onto the roof, mm-hmm. there's only one entrance to the rooftop, yep. and he's approaching from an area that doesn't have the entrance. Uh, and directly, I'm going to dock at a whole star. Directly to the <laughs> side is where he would have just come up. But you have to look it's for good it. Good catch. So <laughs> I like it. The first time I watched it, I was like, "Where did he come from?" <laughs> it's taking me so distracted. I, I had to find it the second time. Um, and then we mm. get to Michelle Moynihan, uh, that interaction, and then boom, helicopter. Boom, helicopter. Yeah, I already so. mentioned the helicopter. I particularly liked Tom Cruise on the motorcycle, mm-hmm. um, driving at top speed throughout town. This is what to me captures what I think of when I think about Ethan Hunt, which is that if he were a superhero, his superpower is just being lucky. Every intersection, he makes it through, the bad like guys Domino don't. Deadpool too. Yeah, exactly. Um, the bad guys don't make the light, he makes the light. Um, See, I count that as luck, but also planning ahead. You know, he's, in always, certain he's moments, always got that right. thing in his eye where it looks like he knows something that you don't. But that's one of the moments where I feel like he's moving too fast to depend yeah. on anything else but his luck. His second superpower would be his wit, mm-hmm. right? Which is on display in that capture of oh, Solomon Lane. And, I, and a lot of I, a I lot would of almost say that his wit would be third and his ability to assess a high-stakes situation and eliminate yeah. the correct individuals would be his second <laughs> so he, specific he's one. like i'm not going to shoot the police woman i'm not going to shoot the police woman i'm going to shoot yeah. everyone and i'm going to save the police woman. yeah you know yeah <laughs> whatever speaking that superpower of, would be yeah speaking of the police woman i think that was one of the one of the most affecting scenes was yeah. when he shoots the bad guys but not not until after they've shot the police. I believe woman, film right? spotting kind of brought up a criticism of that, which is that it makes him into this mythological character instead of a, mm. instead of like, it's not a movie about a character anymore. It's a mythological movie about like a, almost a demigod. Ooh, yeah. And I, I was like, yeah, that's why I love it. Yeah. As a strong lover of Troy, that is why I like this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I, I, I was, they, so they just didn't, they didn't think that that scene worked. No, they like the movie. There's just a criticism that they're um, either aware of or also voicing. That is, yeah. that it's kind of mythologizing this Tom Cruise Ethan Hunt character, where he he's yeah. not even acting anymore. It's just all charisma. Mm, I can see that. 
and, and um, I say just go watch, you know, all the presidents men or something. If, if you yeah. go watch uh, the interview with the vampire, yeah. <laughs> if you want <laughs> Tom Cruise capital A acting, that will do it. Um, in terms of some of the specifics that I was maybe less crazy about, I don't think this movie really knows what to do with Tom Cruise and Rebecca Ferguson romantically. Um, I do. I think that the plot of this movie was to not um, expound on what was done in Rogue Nation. Uh, to me, that feels like a a possibility that then they they just scratched because they didn't because they didn't know where to no, go no, with no, it. I, I felt like I, I was I'm being led they, in a they direction. Didn't expound on the relationship because in in Rogue Nation they set up that they're they're going to be romantically involved. We all know they're going to be romantically involved. Now it's just yeah. Jim and Pam. How long are we going to wait? will they won't they yeah, yeah. and they weren't going to give it to us this one because next one we really wonder because he got her he helped her get her job back this one yeah and they had to fight each other and now they you know they know that they can still love each other after a fight you know there's right that, that this, BS is, this line is the fight stage exactly yeah yeah and you know the next one will be they the first half will be they admit that they like each other and then maybe Ethan gets taken and then we get to see Rebecca Ferguson back to her badass opera Rogue Nation days because that, that was, a good was one. an amazing scene. That was a great scene. Um, so yeah, I, it sounds like you you were okay with their chemistry maybe more than me or, or what sort of possibilities No, 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 I just about. understood mm-hmm. the formula at work here. Yeah, but it has to make you feel the formula, right? Well, I mean, I the formulas exist like they had as a way for each other. Uh, that the tree scene yeah that's the one i was him. thinking of it felt too that felt contrived um, um when he has to hit her oh in the car yeah, yeah, yeah. not in that scene yeah 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 but that's right before that scene you know and then she yeah. limps off um when she saves him by killing the person that she's there to protect yeah in the beginning you know like i bought it because it, they did a slow burn the whole time the guy had a gun and could have shot uh, Vanessa Kirby or him in the bar scene she yeah. took care of him you know like it was just consistent um, and then uh, Vanessa Kirby wanted Rebecca Ferguson's character um, at the exchange and he found a way to not do you know like it just yeah. it kept working for me yeah. because I understood that the point was to always keep her at the edges this isn't a movie about yeah. her and I understand I think I told you to watch Rogue Nation right before you watched it so you maybe. Like, big carryover. I just watched this. I want more of this. Yeah. And it's that's not what this is about. You know, they yeah. they did that Simon Pegg thing in Rogue Nation. Now they're doing the kind of the flip flop with uh, yeah. with Ving Rhames' character. And the point is to build up the tension between him and Rebecca Ferguson, and then maybe yeah. make him the damsel in distress in the next one. Right. Where about halfway through she will have succeeded in saving him, or or she'll have to begin saving him. Right. All that makes sense. I just want to feel it more. Like I'm, I can't say like I'm looking oh, forward fair. to them think, getting together. Did you feel much in Rogue Nation? Uh, not really. That's probably okay. why I think both of them get fours, yeah. right? Um, well, they're not emotional m- movies, you know, to to a great extent. Yeah, but I guess There's I have to believe actors. that there can be a movie that does both, right? That achieves there the are, level. But that's yeah. not this. Right, and, but that's and, why and they're that's why they're different scores. The, for me. the only movie that I personally think did that is unanimously everyone's least favorite, besides mine, Mission Impossible Two. 
I was I loved Mission Impossible too. I do too, but it's it's universally despised. Yes. Or, yeah, maybe that's too harsh of a word, but M- yeah, Mission not appreciated. Mission Impossible Three is by far my least favorite, and I'm big J.J. Mm. Abrams fan, but I I don't think that that's a very good Mission Impossible movie, and I think that there's a lot of you know Hong Kong action absurdism cinema happening in Mission Impossible Two. It's great because it, it centers on Thandi Newton being an emotional character that Ethan Hunt cares about um, yeah. and makes sacrifices for, and you really believe that she's going through what she's going through. And yeah. she, that was one of the few Thandi Newton roles that I knew about that made me know her ability to act and the depth of character that she can bring. Yeah. That when we were interviewing, or when we were reviewing Interview with the Vampire, that's why I wanted more Thandie Newton because I knew what she was capable of and I hadn't seen that movie yeah. since I was probably in middle school but I just, yeah. you know, I remember. Yeah. Between seeing her back in Mission Impossible 2 then Interview with the Vampire and now Westworld I feel like she doesn't age. She looks exactly yes. the same to me. She's very much Rob Lowe. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Side note. But great in all those things. Yes. Um, but yeah, about the so emotional... So Fallout, what's your favorite... Your, your favorite chase scene was the motorcycle. Motorcycles. And your favorite oh, yeah. set piece was... Helicopters. Helicopters, okay. Yeah. Mine's the Halo like, jump, so... Yeah. Halo jump, What's yeah. your favorite fight scene? Um, Probably the bathroom scene. Yeah, the, so the bathroom scene's unanimous. Yeah. Almost everyone loves <laughs> I don't that know anyone that didn't, who said they didn't like the bathroom scene. And um, is it because of his reloading biceps, or is it because of his reloading <sighs> biceps? It's a great touch. Them some biceps. I, don't you want to know? I want to know, like how that was conceived like that had to have been a satisfying moment when if it was the writer if it was him they were like can i like you know reload a little bit and they're like yeah that's a great idea (laughs) (laughs) can i just stretch these bicep beds they're a little bit too stacked bro (laughs) great moment um do what you want superman but about henry cavill more generally i don't know that he was the first actor I would have chosen for this role. I think... I think it was a great... Um, that film spotting uh, used the Dark Knight metaphor. Um, he's the immovable object. Uh, Ethan Hunt's the unstoppable force. I thought that was a great way of putting why it's good. To me, but to me that's a character description, right? He, no, that's a, that, yes, that's a character description of what he brings as an actor. Yeah, I just prefer. I, I think I would have preferred somebody just um, a little more um, eccentric or something in that role. Um, so is this where you'd want Army Hammer? Maybe Army Hammer isn't isn't quite big enough. I don't know if I would have bought him as the Hammer. He seems maybe a little feeble for me. So, so name someone. That you would I know. God, I, I knew you were going to ask me that, and I couldn't so think I, of somebody I, I off the top of my head. A, a huge. <laughs> massive man that i want to act in a mission impossible movie mm. dwayne the rock johnson he definitely crossed my mind i was hesitant to say but it without think thinking a, about it i don't it. think he's a good villain i don't know that he could quite pull i, I it think off. Yeah. uh dave batista yeah would be a decent um but i i don't know if henry cavill was asked to do too much um verbally that maybe they would compromise batista's character yeah um god there's an actor i'm thinking of that i can't remember the name of i have to to look up the last movie i saw him in i was trying to think about who john bernthal yes 
I could have seen him in that role. Yeah, I, um, I could see him in that role. I don't think that he would have done as good of a job as Henry Cavill, though. Yeah, that's fair. I, I've I've seen a fair bit of John's work, and I, I don't think that he's in a prime moment of his career, I'll say. I, I think that he capitalized in Sicario and uh, Wind River. Yeah. And that at the moment, he's not giving my favorite performances. I know a lot of people like his work on The Punisher and stuff. Yeah. And I, I like it. It's just, it's not the strongest I've seen him act. I think he might be a little yeah. distracted by everybody. Yeah. It could be partly Tom Cruise's fault that I feel like the same problem I had with him, with his chemistry, the chemistry he had with Henry Cavill, I, I was, I, I had a problem with that similar to how I had a problem with him and Jeremy Renner in Rogue Nation. Where I feel like he might have trouble like seeding the floor a bit to a character or to an actor whose appeal is kind of similar to his. Um, mm, yeah. I think Jeremy Renner is similarly kind of charismatic, handsome, sharp physique. Um, I feel like he might not feel like this. These movies have so enough I, room I promise for the you that's them. a problem for with Rogue Nation, not a problem with uh, Tom Cruise and and him. Uh, you only had enough time to watch. Uh, Ghost Protocol and um, or sorry Rogue Nation and Fallout if you would have watched Ghost Protocol again you would have seen Jeremy Renner and uh, Tom Cruise playing off of each other really well for a long period of time do you remember that movie at all? it's been a while to be honest there's a limo scene I remember the set pieces there's a limo scene everyone dies besides them they end up in a river and then they spend about 30 minutes straight together and it's really good much more time than they spend together in it was just i i think it was more contractual obligations to marvel maybe at the time that's why he couldn't be be in fallout they offered him a role to die in the beginning and yeah Yeah. so yeah uh i'm hyper positive on it it's no mad max free road but it's going to be the best action movie we're going to get this year based Mm. on what i've seen forecasted very positive on it as well Um, and uh we'll just talk about the the only thing that we've avoided which is the premise um, that it, that we were all led to believe could be possible, which is the nuclear fallout in the beginning of the film. That's exactly right. What did you think? Did you buy in? Oh, yeah. I was oh, it, it was great, wasn't it? Not a problem for me. As soon as it ended, <laughs> I, I leaned over and told my dad, this is already the most fun I've had in a movie all year, and then we're just getting started. We're just getting going. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was quite pleased with the yes. turn it took, and... Yeah, I think it was absolutely the right move. Best use of Wolf yeah. Blitzer in a film. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Give right. him the Oscar. Let's uh, move on to our last classic of the week, Master and Commander. Master and Commander. This is a personal favorite of mine. This is a um, blind spot for you, or you've seen it before? I have not seen Master and Commander before. First time. So are you happy I tricked you into it? Are you into Russell Crowe? This is our second Russell Crowe movie of the week. I am fairly into Russell Crowe. He does have one film on my top 20 of this decade. Which is? The Nice Guys. Ah, there you go. Nice. Uh, I think this is a good recommendation. I liked it quite a darn bit. Yeah, it, it seems like he just finds his way into films that I end up loving. I don't necessarily love his work so much as I never dislike it. Mm. You know, he's one of those actors where I... Especially in Master and Commander, I didn't necessarily love what he was doing, and I kind of looked at his face and was curious, like, who else could have been in this role? And I had, like, visions of Tom Cruise and Interview with the Vampire with that same ponytail, you know? Like, I was just kind of thinking, like, who else could this be? 
and it's just the bravado that he has yeah that just can he's consistent he's almost like eddie mannix yeah he's just the the wheel on which everything turns and uh it, it just works for me yeah it just works for me and it's a peter weir film you are a huge fan of picnic at hanging rock one of my all-time so favorites how does this stack up is this a huge departure is this a terrible letdown or is it a great movie that doesn't do the same um great movie that's just you know doing something completely different in moments. very much love it it um, has similarities though ooh, we should talk about that um but just you know the the, the thumbnail reaction very much into it um i enjoyed the performances i think this is the most this is the most period of our period films right this is early 1800s and set entirely at sea um this is our our costume well war we epic. go to the galapagos islands sir right we okay so we spend a little time on <laughs> on land we we have a, a brief respite at land and every time uh, we're there we moment. have to immediately leave exactly much to paul bettany's dismay, dismay. <laughs> um i like this movie quite a bit i think picnic at hanging rock has a, a sensuality and uh ambiguity to it that's just right up my alley oh, i think 100%. this is this, this is, is nothing you know, this is nothing to do with ambiguity and and subtlety yeah, yeah. this is yeah. just a different mode um but um I still love this quite a bit. Um, I think I really, really would have liked to have seen it on a big screen, right? Anytime you see a big scale, if it comes movie, through, we'll have to make an effort. It would, it would have just hit home even more. Um, but you know, as much as I was kind of swept up in what it looked like, I was swept up in the sound of it. Yes, um, very good sound design. Right, the the thud of every cannon fired. Um, and the sound that really helped bring about the idea of the ship as sort of a living, breathing thing, mm-hmm. right? With each creak and moan of the, the the wood of the ship, it just feels like an ache or a pain um, that you see reflected on these sailors' faces from mm-hmm. start to finish, no matter whether they're succeeding or, or losing in this chase. Um, which this film also is. It's a chase movie, right? Yes. Um, yes. It's many things. To finish, it's a yeah. chase of the Phantom. Yeah. Um, that, that's a great way to put it. Um, but multifaceted was the word that came to mind. Like, I think you could talk about this movie just in terms as a movie about leadership mm-hmm. and whether he's a good leader, he's a bad leader, what kind of leader he is. You could talk about um, it as a movie about uh, friendship between him and Paul Bettany's character. Um, you talk about naturalism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, about the you know just the area or the the era in which it is set, right? Mm-hmm. About the period details specifically. That's the hardest for me to talk about because I never feel I never feel qualified to talk about like what a period film gets right Do and wrong about a, a period. Do you have a history degree? No, me I neither. have so never studied. <laughs> I've never studied the Napoleonic Wars, but. Well, I was. You went to high school. I went to high school, but like, I've that's never been something yeah. that I, I just you know. You know to something look up. generally in the back of your mind, but you exactly. Didn't know, you know. Yeah. Um. Um, but I think all those different um, 
facets of it interested me. Um, yes. It makes it a really rich movie, yeah, despite it, it just being it about two ships. gives it dimension as a gem. Yeah. Kind of. Um, so I think that, I personally think, and, and I might be wrong about how you interpret it, but I think that what's unique about the picnic at Hanging Rock is that it's ethereal. Mm. And I think that this film has certain moments of deep etherealness. Specifically when um, the man who later grabs a cannonball and jumps goes below decks and everyone salutes him. Yeah. That was very much a picnic hanging rock for me. I would agree. Okay. Great point. Great connection. So I I, I did feel it. You know what I mean? Yeah. it, It came back. And the majestic call of the rocky land and the beauty that it held on the Galapagos Islands I thought was also you know similar and I think that later he um, kind of goes against what he's communicated in these two films in The Way Back I have not seen The Way Back yes tell me about that just like at a high level um, so Russian concentrate or Russian uh, prison camps um, during communism um, three men, or it's more than that, but three men end up making it out. Mm-hmm. And they walk all the way to either Tibet, China, or the Himalayas. Together? And it's, yes. Right, okay. And it's the, it's the way back to, you know, life. And it's just yeah. this incredible journey. And it kind of capitalizes, uh, to use that word again, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's act, the actual theme of the podcast. Yeah, yes, is capital with a K. <laughs> um, it, it really brings out um, what I think Peter Weir does best, which is he he finds a way to depict the way that we experience life in many different eras, in many different places, mm. without trying to give us a, a forced perspective. He just kind of presents it the way that he sees how to present it and lets us do what we can with it. And to me, um, right after I finished The Way Back, the, the thing that I thought the most was... National Geographic should just give him an overall billion dollar deal to just make them movies because this idea. guy's movies are National Geographic pictures. Yeah. You know, like it's just, it's National Geographic. You want to go to Australia? Picnic at Hanging Rock. You want to go yeah. seafaring? I got Master and Commander. You yeah. want to go experience the Siberian tundra? We got yeah. way back, you know? it's yeah. um, He just knows how to present life in an honest way that doesn't talk down. I, I think yeah. that's what I've noticed overall yeah. in those films. Yeah, so I have not seen The Way Back, but I did just by chance in the past week or two weeks watch The Truman Show, which I had never seen. Another Peter Weir movie, which you I, you have seen. Yes, it's one look, of my I favorites, assume. and yeah. uh, you weren't a fan of Jim Carrey, and it was one of the top recommendations I gave you a few yeah. weeks ago to watch if you want to try to yeah. appreciate Jim Carrey. I really liked him in it, really liked the movie. Um but between, you know, the Peter Weir movies I have seen now, The Truman Show, Master and Commander, Picnic at Hanyard Rock, um, you know, these, I don't feel like, relative to other directors, the, the through line between them, although what you just said is very helpful, I had not thought that the through line between his filmographies, or his films, was, was super clear. Um, ex- you know, except that he's just exceptionally good at knowing... Um, how to fit form and content and yes. how to know exceptionally good right at, at manipulating a set into a character story yeah with the truman show 
that that all that voyeurism is um, encapsulated in the cinematography, right? It's yes. all those angles from which you you're looking at Truman as if it's from a security camera. Yes. Right. Um, in Picnic at Hanging Rock, you know, this is this this feels something like a dream. It's a completely different mode, but it's completely in sync with what you know these these characters are experiencing, which is something like a fever dream or something surreal. And this, you know, cinematography at, at the end, that I don't think that was real. It's kind of how you leave it, right? Right, right. Um, and then a completely different mode, but that for Master and Commander, but that feels just right for the story yeah, he's telling. Which is like this is one hundred percent real. Yeah, <laughs> this exactly. Is the most real I've ever seen. Yeah, so you know, he's just the kind of guy that like I don't know what kind of scripts he's necessarily drawn to. Although what you just said makes a lot of sense, so now maybe I do. Um, but but like I would be comfortable knowing that like he was handed just about any script and would know what to do with it you know or to not take it i think he's very, very true good too i'd love to know what he script. what he's turned down because these too. are all so different yes um i've also didn't he direct dead poet society that's one i haven't seen in a long time but. he or um the fella who just did the uh the joaquin who can't kill don quixote movie <laughs> oh gus van sant yes that, uh yeah that might have been him um but yeah, you know, you know. Anyways, the or point it could is have been second lions, or you know, yeah, yeah. Movies are the one same. of those <laughs> exactly. They're kind of interchangeable. Um, I think Gus Van Sant did Goodwill Hunting. He did, which is similar, he also did that. <laughs> yes. similar kind of mode. Um, but yeah. Anyways, back to Master and Commander. Um, I loved almost everything about it. I think I think I gave it a four. I feel like I'm gonna bump it up. I don't. It I, deserves I, a four. And I half. think it was partly maybe just. Um, trying to be, seen it, I don't know, critical and not let your appreciation for his other work overwhelm you. Yeah, so maybe it's partly because I loved Picnic at Haney Rock. It's like I wanted to give it this space or something like that. Um, but I really can't think of that much about this movie that I didn't like. Yeah. I think I just would have felt it even more on a big screen. You know, epics absolutely always the, the impact sound is heightened. Quality. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the one thing that allows me. A, to get some perspective on it is that it was made the same year but came out you know three months after the two towers oh yeah um so the quality of cg that he has is not very good it's a lot better than it was three years before that but you know he's not steven spielberg he doesn't get to do whatever he wants right so i'm just picturing the planning and meticulous scheduling that he would have had to do on those studio lots with these ships rocking back and forth and manipulating lighting to get the and the fans to get the right like i just wow yeah. the craftsmanship just like in fallout is yeah. so overwhelming here that i had to pause it to figure out where i could point to that was fake and it yeah. was i had to pause it and look behind the cabin window at the skyline at the light on the skyline to figure out that that's not the correct light yeah. you know yeah. and you didn't notice when it was just the middle of the battle so it, it's just great craftsmanship that's aging really really well yeah yeah there i don't think there's anything in it that that, that won't hold up in a decade um just gotta hope we get to see it on a big screen again sometime yeah. soon it, it could happen see a yeah. listener almost coming so yeah. immensely positive hugely positive uh, absolutely there's not really much to spoil there's not too much to dig into that 
helps you understand that Russell Crowe's amazing. Yeah. Paul Bettany does some of his best work. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of supporting characters that are really important. The ethereal scene is one of my favorite scenes. The action yeah. scenes are some of my favorite um, action scenes in historical uh, cinema. Yeah. Um, it's just beautiful. Um, probably leave it at that. You got any follow-ups there? Go watch it. It's available for rent. All right. iTunes, Google, all the regular sources. We'll do our uh, our weekly recap at the moment of the sharp objects hbo limited series that's right from the director of dallas buyers club and wild absolutely uh jean jean marc valet jean marc valet of course how could i forget such a complicated Mm. name to remember that's right (laughs) um we had a chance to see the hbo premiere in seattle at the uh, uh sip up town yes in queen anne it was Fantastic! We got to hear Chris D'Elia. No, not Chris D'Elia. That is a Chris, funny stand-up comic. Chris Messina. Chris Messina. Was in attendance. A delightful actor. And a very good performer in this one. I thought that episode one was stronger. We're going to cover episode one and two. Then episode two, but I thought episode two really built kind of that ethereal quality that you like in Picnic at Hanging Rock. Into yep. the town more. Like, it, it made it more questionable who was who and that woman in white scene i really liked mm, um, yeah that was nice uh they, they didn't do much to build amy's character but they did a lot to build the town in episode two yeah. whereas yeah. in episode one they really built up the character and i really want to know more about her scars and they kind of show yeah. it a little bit but they don't do much and then we have a moment with christmas scene at the bar again um where yeah. some guys say some terrible stuff to her that i don't really recall i just remember getting angry um yeah what else do you have to say about it? Um, I think th- the realization I had watching episode two was that if there's any through line with John Mark Valet's work, it's that he's most of his most of his films are are about victims of trauma. That mm-hmm. was what I thought. Um, I thought a lot about Big Little Lies and Shailene Woodley's character, who's he loves this editing technique that we already talked about you know where he's kind of disconnecting the sound we're hearing from the image we're hearing and he used that a lot in big little lies to sort of um imply some sort of trauma that shailene woodley's character had experienced we're getting that same kind of thing very well done yeah and we're getting the same kind of thing in sharp objects um i haven't seen wild in a long time but i think it was a similar kind of thing there that's why she was going on this i believe that the yes the the Hmm. scenes that reese witherspoon endured are kind of spliced in there right in a similar manner right um one thing that Mm -hmm. episode two did for me was um it just brought a greater appreciation of patricia clarkson's acting ability Mm. for me she was really good in episode one but her character just kept making me hate her in episode two they give her a little bit more compassion they show her crying and her dead daughter's bed oh yeah that's what um, i was gonna mention and too. It, it just it really built up the it, it allowed me to let her character in more into my heart yeah and it also made me question the what the deal of this fella that lives in the house is yeah that is yeah. the father of her half sister amy adams half sister yeah yeah no easy characters so far i kind of thought from episode Christmas one scene that... is kind of easy he, I guess he's he he's definitely easy. didn't do it, and I definitely <laughs> like him. <laughs> right? There's there's nobody that I thought like we're we're clearly supposed to hate them, or we're clearly supposed to like them. I yes. thought like Patty Clarkson might be the evil mom, just I did like too. you said. Yeah. I think 
it's a little more complicated. I appreciate that. And now they're that. kind of playing that into the dad, and I'm sure yeah. that, that won't end up either. But the way that they incorporated that pig head with like, Ooh, yeah. you know, that it had to be someone strong that could do it, and maybe it's someone who works at the butcher shop, and maybe you know, yeah. he owns the land where they do that, or maybe it's you know a Breaking Bad situation where it's underneath yeah. the factory. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. I wanted to know what do you think about the porn shack? The porn shack you mean like the kind of the glimpses we're getting of it no so in episode one uh young amy adams goes into a shack in the woods after the boys are being like pointing guns at her oh got it got it okay pornography and then in in episode Mm. two we're getting glimpses of that that's what i was kind of thinking of yeah yeah Yeah. i guess i kind of had forgotten that we actually like went in there in episode one um to me that's uh i don't know quite what to make of it um narratively yet like i don't i I don't think i have that happened to her there or that's oh, like where yeah. what happened to her sister happened. Yeah, I think I, I th- that absolutely sounds right. Um, to me, that's sort of what what makes this fit a bit into sort of this noir tradition of this commingling, right, of sex and violence. Yes. Right. That's just this this classic combination, um, and that's what makes it sort of weirdly off putting and inviting at the same time. Um, I'm eager to see where it goes. Yes, 100. I can't wait to watch episode three. We are yeah. running two episodes behind so that we don't spoil too much and we have plenty of time to... Space it out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so definitely watch it. I think the one other thing that I'd like to mention, and I don't know her name, but it was brought up at the when we were down at SIF. Um, the young girl who plays Amy Adams, who was in It, yeah really good performer really great job i can't wait yeah. to see what she does with her future i think that she's going to be a, a future talent not yeah. not as good an actress probably as amy adams is but yeah she she has the chops to really make a go of it you know we could have a, yeah a, you know someone near the range of anne hathaway by the looks of it yeah and i think we'll get more of her as we kind of figure out what she's her only in three total like. episodes oh really oh yes. okay yeah i did That's my research yeah so even more interesting then mm-hmm I'm eager I, to see I'm, it. I'm, yeah, I wonder how the story's going to unfold. Yeah. All right. Well, it should that's, be good. Uh, that's been drinking the movies with Michael and Taylor. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed your drinks. We enjoyed ours. We're all done with ours. We just got water left. Um, next week, we're going to be doing a Spike Lee triple feature of his classics. Uh, She's Gotta Have It, Malcolm X, and... 25th Hour. In anticipation of his latest film, uh, Black Klansman. Yes. Which we're both very eager to see. And we've got booked for a late Thursday showing. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we hope to have you back next week. This has been Drinking the Movies with Michael. See you next week. And Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) I did it again. (laughs) I got to take a look. You sure did, Brittany.